The CFB Winning Edge podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Bowl season is here. The coaching carousel is in full swing. The transfer portal is bigger than ever. And we're excited to dive into our preparations for 2022. But we'd also like to offer a sincere thank you to everyone who signed up this year at patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge. Whether you join Tier 1 for a single month or have been a Tier 3 member for years, your contribution helps keep us up and running and funds updates and new features. We smashed our previous records in 2021, both in terms of members and funds, and plan to invest that support into future projects to provide more value to listeners, readers, and subscribers in 2021 and beyond. Thank you for making 2021 our most successful season yet, and for helping pave the road to an even better 2022. Welcome back, everybody. It's the CFB Winning Edge Podcast Bowl Season Edition number one here. And we skipped last week. We took a week off because we just had the Army-Navy game and, you know, just a couple trophies being presented and all that stuff. Nothing big. But at least there was no news at all, right? Everything just stayed calm and there was no excitement at all. No, no, no. We got a lot to go over here. We had uh, some signings. We had a lot of coaches moving. All kinds of stuff going on. So, uh, Nick, I'll bring you in right here. Follow Nick on the Twitter at CFB Winning Edge. Follow Xavier at Xavier underscore Trish, C-R-I-C-H-E, my partners in crime here uh, on this pod. And Nick, um, what, where do we want to start? Do we want to start with coaches? Do we want to start with signing day? What is the most interesting of the last two weeks since we uncharacteristically skipped one week of the whole? Because we did the show all year round. This isn't just a during the season show. So um, where where do we start here? You know, my, my head is kind of swimming, to be honest. I mean, yeah, part of the man. reason uh, we didn't get together last week was just, you know, sort of logistically. I'm, I'm actually on the road, went back home to Georgia for a few days uh, to visit some family and, and had a, a scheduling uh, issue with that. I've had to move some things around. But what are you doing to join your holiday season? We need college football <laughs> information. Come well, on. Well, you know enjoying i don't know if that's the right you know, <laughs> right word but no it, it is definitely it's definitely good to, to see folks i haven't seen in a long time and it's just you know another another layer of course of of uh uh things going on but yeah college football obviously never stops i mean we didn't necessarily get a, a chance to talk about the uh conference championship games but there were some incredible moments there uh the big 12 championship game coming down to the final you know, foot uh, or, or just a few inches to determine whether or not uh, maybe a, a team made the playoff or not, uh, Oklahoma State. Um, we saw Alabama come up and, and really, uh, to a lot of folks' surprise, you know, play incredibly, incredibly well against Georgia. Georgia looked uh, different than it had the rest of the season, looked obviously beatable uh, for the first time. And, and so it'll be very interesting to see if we get a rematch uh, of that game in a couple of weeks. If now, you know, now the, the narrative has shifted to how could Georgia, or it seems at least from, from my view, 
you know, how could Georgia possibly beat Alabama? So it'll be interesting to see if we get another shot at that. But of course, you know, the, the playoff matchups were announced. Michigan is is clicking on all cylinders, so they're certainly going to give Georgia uh, a battle. But in addition to that, you know, Bryce Young, Heisman Trophy winner, national uh, uh, trophy winners all over the place. Today is signing day, huge bit of news there with, uh, you know, the FCS level. Uh, Deion Sanders, Coach Prime, pulling off a, a shocker, landing Travis Hunter, who had been committed to Florida State for a long time. Uh, there are half a dozen coaches that have changed since the last time we talked. And then the transfer portal is just, uh, just I mean, I'm making the bane dozen, of your existence, isn't it? You know, it's 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 something we've talked about a little bit before it's it's something that we paid a little bit more attention to a few years ago kind of in the early days of of CFB winning edge than most other people did just tracking transfers but over the the last couple of years of course it's become a national thing and it's it's now a daily or hourly thing i mean i'm making about a dozen changes per hour in our oh. FBS team profiles and we're getting quarterbacks galore um yeah i mean there there is absolutely a ton going on and then of course bowl games start this week where we'll we'll spend the majority of our time today but yeah we can definitely uh hit a little bit of the the signing day coaching stuff some uh maybe a few transfers here or there but uh we'll also you know dive into all that in a little a little deeper uh once we once we hit the you know the actual off season uh here in about a month and Xavier, I mean, it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? Bowl season. We get a bowl pretty much every day moving forward here. I think maybe except Sundays, uh, they probably don't do bowls, right? Because they mm. go up against the NFL. So, yeah. but, uh, but I mean, it, it's bowl season. It's here. Uh, what is, what is the most interesting? Is it awards? Is it waiting for the playoff? Is it all the bowls? Is it signings? Is it coaches moving? What, what at this point in the year with so much going on, what really grabs your attention more than anything else? Well, I was up at 8 a.m. looking at signings what? this morning. Uh, it, it's not, early signing day or national signing day when it was just in February. It was one of my favorite days of the year um, just to see what the new uh, crop of talent will do. Obviously, you know, Travis Hunter going to um, Jackson State this morning. I've been following Travis Hunter for since his sophomore year of high school. So, you know, to, to see that, you know, I was – at one of his more breakout games like three years ago and watching some of these kids just kind of grow up. I say kids and I'm only 25 uh, watching some of these kids grow up and, you know, make the, a decision that for the most part from, from the majority of them will be their next four, three to four years. It, it's cool to see. Um, obviously bowl season is great. Um, I'm actually going to be spending Christmas in, uh, in Montgomery uh, as Georgia state ended up in the Camellia bowl this year. Uh, so I was like, well, uh, bowl season finally bit me in the butt. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think it's a great time if you haven't been able to see a lot of the teams that we're about to talk about in this episode, to just give an opportunity to see this. You know, obviously we'll get into, you know, next year and, you know, we'll get into their projections and things of that nature once the offseason get there. But a great opportunity to kind of figure out what a team may look like going into next year uh, or what they may completely, you know, what they may be losing in, in the same respect. This is a great time to see it. So I love bowl season for that reason. We're going to have some weird matchups and we'll get to those in just a second. Yeah, I mean, just the for me, uh, I I love the coaches moving and I love signing day and and all that stuff. But to me, that's more off season stuff. The bowls, the bowl season, 
is uh, absolutely my favorite time of year because just because we get football every day, it's so much fun. You know, we're gonna have a uh, big slate on Saturday here, of course, but um, you know, just starting Friday and uh, we get football every single day until the middle of January. Yeah, it's just literal so Alamo. It, that is my Christmas gift every year is, you know, just uh, all of all of these balls. And I, I see that on the sheet, um, Nick wouldn't even recognize the Jimmy Kimmel ball. He just put L.A. ball on there. So, yeah, uh, Jimmy Kimmel bought himself a ball game, which yeah, is just did. hilarious. But uh, so much oh, to cover. Scott, Go ahead. You, yeah. you forget the best part about the bowl season, the swag bags. Oh yeah, yeah. There's, Watching the, the, yeah. the volunteers put together these swag bags, which is just okay. You know, come on. How much money <laughs> these schools make? They can't hire someone to put these together. You, can't, you have to have volunteers, probably old alumni or something. Like it's just that's a little ridiculous to me. But uh, yeah, seeing the the swag bags and who's going to get the best one. And some of these mm -hmm. bowl games have some pretty strong Twitter games as yeah. well. So um, seeing all that, I mean, there's just so much going on. Mm -hmm. It's incredible here. So, Nick, let's start with the the signing period. And uh, Xavier just alluded to, uh, you know, um, the the big number one overall recruit, Travis Hunter, uh, flipping from Florida State to Jackson State. Now, I know that Jackson State is moving to the FBS, but what is that going to be in a couple years, or is that not going to happen? What what's going on with no? That? So it's it's it can be a little bit confusing. So Jackson State is in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, an HBCU, incredibly, uh, just, a, just a huge fan base. Uh, I actually lived in Jackson, Mississippi for a couple of years and uh, got a, a little bit of a, a closer up view, you know, than, than I had, um, you know, learned a little bit more than, than I had coming in. But Jackson State for a while, and not just since Deion Sanders um, took over as head coach, but they've, they've outdrawn FBS programs, I mean, maybe as many, if I were to guess, the half of the FBS programs, I and mean, they consistently get, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 uh, at the Memorial Stadium in, in, in uh, downtown Jackson. And, uh, you know, the, the profile of HBCUs have just uh, increased to levels we haven't seen in, in decades just in the last couple of years. Deion Sanders uh, obviously, you know, brought a big spotlight to Jackson State, but Hugh Jackson was just named the head coach at Grambling. Um, there's also Eddie George is, is uh, the head coach uh, at Tennessee State in Nashville. And we're seeing some higher profile players. I mean, you know, Jackson State's had a bunch of FBS transfers in the last uh, year or so, you know, after Sanders took over as the head coach there. Um, but we're seeing more and more guys go to the SWAC, go to uh, HBCUs, and it's really fun to see. Uh, but we've also, I know there was a basketball player, I don't follow college basketball very closely, but I know there was a five-star basketball player who signed at Howard uh, a year or two ago. And so we're seeing more of the guys who could go anywhere they want to go. Uh, five-star guys, you know, elite, elite recruits, at the very least, you know, throw in a, an HBCU program in their list of, you know, final five, final three. I've seen that, you know, a few dozen times. Uh, but these programs playing at the FCS level are, are starting to bring in higher rated recruits. I know uh, last year, Deion Sanders brought in a, a four-star quarterback and he happened to be his son. So a little bit of a different <laughs> uh, situation there. But 
you know, this this is certainly about as high profile as it gets, a number one recruit in the country going to Jackson State. But I, I believe, you know, we're going to be seeing this more and more. And uh, it's it's really fun to see. It's a, it's a change in college football. Um, and I know for programs, you know, like Jackson State, like Grambling, um, who have a, a just a, a rich history and have played football at a really high level for a long time, but then over the last couple of decades, you know, uh, through a, a, just a wide range of, of reasons, but, you know, the, the money and support in some of the programs uh, had been lagging behind to see sort of this rejuvenation of, of interest and of support. And um, it, it's, it's, it's cool to see. So I, you know, it, it, it was a surprise, you know, this seemed to be kind of a, a last second thing. I'm, I'm don't follow recruiting as closely as, as a lot of people out there, but it, this seemed to be something I hadn't, you know, heard whispers of until basically today that, that Hunter might end up at Jackson state, but it was definitely the biggest surprise of the day. Least surprising. We're seeing Georgia and Alabama right there at, at you know, number one, number three in, in the national rankings. <laughs> and Texas A&M is, is in that mix as well. Those three all seem to be uh, pretty close, close enough maybe that um, any of the three, when all is said and done in February, could be the, the one standing with the number one class. But that group of three seems to kind of separate themselves from uh, the rest of the pack. I believe Texas uh, in the two four seven ratings is is number four, but there's a there's a pretty big gap between number three Texas A and M uh, and number four Texas right now. Um, so Georgia Texas A and M and Alabama have just been on an absolute roll. Uh, and then something we've talked about a little bit, and and we had uh, it, it had been a little bit confusing at times. Would two four seven sports and the other sites start including transfers in their overall rankings? Well, they officially have. They've started that. Uh, at 247 Sports, and they now have a separate set specifically of, of transfer rankings. Uh, USF, South Florida, is actually number one. They've landed, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, about 10 guys uh, for the, the 2022 transfer class. Uh, but Michigan State's brought in a few high-profile transfers on the defensive side of the ball is a, a pretty close number two. So those are those are sort of the interesting things to me, most interesting things, because I just haven't had time to dive in yet on individual players or, or uh, recruiting classes. Uh, oh, but getting back to the original point, Jackson State will still be an FCS program next year and beyond. Jacksonville State in Alabama is the one State. moving up. They just hired Rich Rodriguez this is the fifth time as their I've head coach. This year. I got to straighten it out. I hey, keep you're, screwing you're not, Yeah, You're not alone. You're not alone. But one of the things I've seen today, you know, because Jacksonville State beat Florida State, of course, during the regular season this year. Yes. Jackson State beat Florida State for, uh, for Travis Hunter. And so I've seen <laughs> a lot of memes, a lot of mentions of uh, now Florida State's lost to two FCS teams. Uh, this year so yeah it's uh I mean, it's you know little little bit of a rough day for for florida state for sure quinn ewers i mean that's you know got got to be a big part of the uh you know the longhorns ranking fourth or whatever they're at right now but uh xavier i mean this is your wheelhouse man this is the stuff you like so what is the most interesting thing in uh you know uh the transfer outside of Rico, whose time is now, of course, but um, you know, who else do you like in this transfer portal and signing day? What what are the things that stand out to you? Obviously, Rudolph having to be the big one here. Rudolph, 
Did I say uh, well, Hunt, Hunt, <laughs> Travis Rudolph? I was like, Travis Rudolph. Uh, well, wow, now yeah, I'm yeah, thinking yeah, of Florida yeah. State, the Travis's, Travis Rudolph, Hunter, my bad. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, coming into the day, obviously, the, the, the biggest recruit, and we'll find this out as the podcast is going right now, is Kamari Wilson. He's a four or five star safety currently looking at Florida State still, but obviously, maybe Travis Hunter's decision may skew that. He's, um, uh, if you've looked, uh, obviously, Billy Napier at Florida, they have done an excellent job over the last three weeks trying to to wrap that class around. Haven't had as much success today as people thought they would, uh, but Kamari Wilson may change that as he's thinking about his, his top three right now are Florida, Georgia, and uh, Florida State, as well as A&M is kind of in there a little bit um, as well. A&M is a school that looks like it may flip a couple of people this morning. Or this afternoon, Michigan flipped a ton of kids this morning. I think they flipped three, uh, specifically one out of Ohio uh, that was originally committed to Ohio State. Uh, Speaking of Michigan, uh, great um, piece of uh, – great move from Mel Tucker who uh, signed – I can't remember the kid's name who was a part of the school shooting. He signed him to an official letter of intent this morning. Uh, they did an entire like marketing layout. Uh, they they gave him the whole spiel, the jersey, the you know uh, the the intro video that they get when they sign with Michigan State. Uh, he was only he was a class of twenty twenty three kid, but all intents and purposes, he was supposed to you know he was a guy who was rising up the rankings as obviously his career was going to continue to go. And he was already a two star. <clears throat> Typically, those kids end up as high three stars, four stars by the time that they get to their senior year. So uh, shout out to Mel Tucker and Michigan State for doing that. It's just been a really, really fun day. Um, Clemson was able to sign K. Klubenix. That was a great signing for them as Dabble Sweeney is really just trying to hold the fort down with literally yeah. everybody leaving. Uh, so everybody was a little bit worried um, about what maybe Clemson may do today because of the fact that they've lost so much notoriety uh, and talent at the coaching level. And lastly, I'll, I'll hit on this. Uh, I don't know if you guys have already seen it. I, 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 the people listening probably have as well. But, you know, um, Brian Kelly deciding to put on his, you know, his, his best dance shoes and, and dancing with Walker Howard, uh, you know, as, you know, that was kind of his, that's, that's been one of the big MOs for him was keeping him when he first got to LSU. As Walker Howard was a guy who pe- many people thought may look at, you know, somewhere like a Florida or something, you know, once uh, Ed Orgeron was, was, was like, go. So it's been a good day. Obviously, yeah, I got to talk about Quinn Ewers going to Texas. Uh, that's a massive decision uh, for him and obviously Texas. Uh, and, 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 you know, Steve Sarkeesian, as poorly as they were on the field this year, he's done what he's what he was able to do at Alabama. Yes. And he's recruited really, really well, keeping that class together. And if you really look around the rest of the Big 12, they by far and away are doing the best job um oklahoma is for is reeling wouldn't be the correct word but they're struggling right now oklahoma has lost a couple of kids already today uh on the recruiting trail they've had a couple of flips already and they're just they're just not in the best of places kids especially on the defensive end are excited to play for brett venables but the unknown at oklahoma right now i think is a little worrisome for a lot of a lot of potential signees who are you know uh and I've had a couple of them today already say that they're going to wait till February to make a decision, which is never a good sign when you have a signing day right now that you could possibly do as well. Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the signing day stuff is a lot of fun. Uh, also, uh, you know, since we have been on last, lots of coaching changes. I don't even know where to start here, Nick. So I'm going to be the relay <laughs> racer. I'm going to hand the baton right to you. There are so many coaching changes, so many coordinator changes. It is hard to keep pace. It's almost as bad as a transfer portal 
with these coaching changes. So, uh, you know, just lay it out for us. Where do you want to start and uh, roll right into it here? Yeah, so I'll just kind of quickly read through uh, my notes, basically <laughs> here, as in the in the sheet, and we'll hit mostly on head coaches today. One of the things I'm excited about doing in the off season, and and I think we talked about it a little bit, um, is I'm looking forward to diving into more of the coaching, uh, just stuff, coaching history. Uh, get some things organized statistically um, with our, you know, team performance and, and all of that good stuff. Um, expand sort of the coaching section that we have in our uh, stat projections and kind of expand that into a larger coaching database uh, of sorts. Um, so I've, I've been kind of, you know, trying to, to track all of these and, and the head coach is relatively easy, even though there's been a ton of turnover, a lot of movement. Uh, but I'm excited to see, you know, now as we're shifting, it, it looks like as we speak, Temple is is getting ready maybe to uh, finalize its head coach. And that would actually give us all 133 now, because you mentioned Jacksonville State. There's also James Madison and Sam Houston State moving up uh, over the next two years. Next year will be a transition, but we will uh, cover all 133 in 2022. Uh, but we'll we'll have finalized the head coaches, and then it's you know going to be a lot of coordinator moving, and then always after signing day, there's you know position coaches, and and uh, a lot of those guys will be changing jobs as well. So we'll have plenty of stuff to talk about, but just primarily head coaches. Uh, shortly after we finished recording last week, Brian Kelly, or two weeks ago now, uh, Brian Kelly left Notre Dame for LSU. The defensive coordinator at Notre Dame, Marcus Freeman, uh, was hired a, a few days later to replace Kelly. I think that's a, a great fit. Young guy, you know, has done a, a, a ton of great things at Cincinnati and Notre Dame. Um, and, you know, you worry a tiny bit, is he ready for that big of a job as a first-time head coach? But we're seeing more and more young guys, guys in their 30s, get their first shot and, you know, really thrive. I mean, Lincoln Riley is kind of the, the first comp that comes to mind with Freeman being on the other side of the ball, of course. But, uh, similar age when they took over, were promoted from within, uh, and Riley kept Oklahoma rolling. So there's you know certainly some reason for optimism that Freeman uh, will be able to do that as well. And it seemed like you know the the roster, uh, the the players absolutely erupted. We saw the videos when Freeman was announced. So that's exciting to see, and it'll be really uh, interesting to watch how that all plays out. Another high profile defensive coordinator is a now a first time head coach at Oklahoma, Brent Venables. Uh, had been, you know, on the top of a lot of people's boards uh, for quite a while. Most people would say that the number one defensive coordinator in college football in recent years, he's certainly number one in our defensive coordinator rankings based on our uh, team performance uh, results and ratings from, from years past. Uh, he is headed to Oklahoma. Xavier mentioned some of the, you know, Oklahoma recruiting there. I believe they were able to pick up a couple of uh, recruits who had been committed to Clemson, or at least there's some, some discussion there. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. But they also hired um, Jeff Levy as offensive coordinator from Ole Miss. Uh, so pretty exciting. You know, a lot of people pay attention to college fantasy football, really excited about that hire. We shouldn't expect the offense, uh, the, the Oklahoma offense to take much of a step back based on what 
Levy had done at a play caller as a play caller at Ole Miss, and then uh, you know was was a big part of the UCF offense prior to that. Um, Miami fired Manny Diaz. A little bit of a surprise, kind of a really cringy thing as we were watching it, uh, because it looked like they were going to you know get Mario Cristobal from Oregon or try to just say you know Diaz will stay, and uh, they ended up. They were able to convince Cristobal to, to come back home. A uh, lot going on there. It's a new era for Miami. Also a much bigger financial uh, commitment than we've seen in a while for that program. So it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. Diaz ends up landing at Penn State, replacing Brent Pry, who moved on to Virginia Tech. Uh, Georgia defensive coordinator Dan Lanning, one of the top coordinators in the country, uh, was hired at Oregon. That then, uh, you know, that that'll be an interesting one to watch. Landing will be on staff through the playoff, uh, but there's a uh, succession plan for the defensive, uh, or at least play calling duties there at, at Georgia. They'll be promoting from within. Uh, Tony Elliott, another longtime Clemson assistant, leaving for Virginia. So Davos Sweeney has to replace both coordinators promoted from within. You know, uh, how will that play out? Uh, will be a topic of conversation and a lot of movement at, at some of the, you know, group of five uh, conference levels and, and, you know, other programs. Jay Norvell left Nevada for Colorado State. He's brought a ton of recruits and a ton of transfers already with him. Uh, also in the Mountain West, Jeff Tedford, after a couple of years away, uh, working on some health issues, is back at Fresno State. There's a new head coach at Louisiana, Michael uh, DeZormio promoted after Billy Napier left. Uh, John Sumrall from Kentucky has taken over at Troy. Duke hired Texas A&M's defensive coordinator, Mike Elko, another big-time, highly successful defensive coordinator, getting a first-time head coaching opportunity. And Florida International, FIU, hired Mike McIntyre, who had been at Memphis most recently, uh, a couple other places prior to that, but former you know, National Coach of the Year at Colorado uh, and then San Jose State before that. So pretty interesting hire. A lot of interesting hires, a lot of moving parts, still, you know, not fully done yet on the head coaching side. And then plenty of more uh, coordinators will definitely have a, a ton to talk about as these stabs are changing. The rosters, of course, changing as a result uh, over the, the many, many months. There's, you know, I still use the term offseason, but there's pretty much there is no offseason in, in college football. We're going to be busy uh, with all of, all of this for, for months. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And this is, uh, these are just important moves. They kind of, they happen in the middle of, you know, the playoff and the bowl season and all that stuff. But these are important moves for the future of these programs. Obviously they do, um, get a little less attention than probably deserved right now. But Xavier, your thoughts on these moving pieces in the coaching front, like what stands out to you the most? What do you think was good? What do you think is bad? Um, just your overall thoughts on the coaching landscape as of now. Yeah. The mass exodus that Clemson is the first thing that comes to mind, you know, that, you know, that they have been so, and when you look at some of the guys who left Tony Elliott, he's been at Clemson since like 2004, you know, this is a guy who, and before that has only spent one year at South Carolina state. He's been a part of Clemson's, you know, staffer forever. You know, Brett Venables has not only been a part of the staff, but had his children a part of the staff, a part of the team already, been and gone. You know, it, it's just, it was, that was wild to see kind of, you know, you felt like it was going to happen, but all at the same time was like, wow. 
you know, it right. was just, you know, but we felt maybe after this year, it was time to do so because obviously, you know, this is probably the worst season that they've had in a while under Dabo. So it was probably, you know, so it was probably a good time to, to, to leave and, and to make sure that, you know, make a movement uh, before maybe things got too stale. Another one for me was obviously Brian Kelly coming to LSU. Uh, I was surprised. I think all LSU fans, you know, I was, I love being on Twitter. You know, if you guys aren't on Twitter, listen to this <laughs> podcast, get on Twitter because the creation of Twitter spaces has allowed for a lot of these fan bases to finally fire off in a, in a group setting. Right now there's a fire Mike Norvell space that's going on after the whole Travis Hunter situation. Uh, speaking of him, he got just got an extension as well to 2026. So that's been <laughs> great. They're having a great time with that. Uh, but when Lincoln Riley announced that he was going to USC, and the LSU fan base, I, I, I can only to describe them in one word, the panic is what set in from the majority of that fan base. But to, have, to get such a high profile coach and Brian Kelly to come to LSU of all places where, you know, they were definitely surprised. I, I know you saw the memes of what Brian Kelly sounds like day one when he gets to LSU versus what he's going to sound like by the time he leaves. And it was uh, at Orgeron. Uh, you know, and I was, you know, this is a great time. I, I love all of the coaching moves for the most part, even losing Dan Landing at Georgia. I think him going to Oregon is going to just be at the very least fun. Venable's going to Oklahoma. They have a defensive coach at Oklahoma. Does that mean they're going to play any better defense? Maybe. Like, th- these are things <laughs> that, like, you know, th- th- these are these are narratives that I think you have to think of right now uh, with the new coaching landscape. And, and, you know, I'm really excited just to watch how things play out over the next four or five years. You know, because I don't think we've seen this much play coach movement in one off season. Heck, in one month, then we've seen. You know, maybe I don't know, maybe not in my lifetime, it feels like at least. You know, and lastly, you know, I think what, what, what kudos to Manny Diaz for landing on his feet because what was happening at Miami was just weird. It, it was just weird. Everything you heard coming out of that camp was Manny Diaz was still recruiting for Miami. Manny Diaz was, you know, the guy. Manny D- the AD came out right after the last game of the season and said, "We believe in Manny Diaz." And then you started hearing about Cristobal and then maybe Cristobal was taking the job. Then they announced that he had taken the job, but then he hadn't actually signed the paperwork. And I was just like, "What is going on?" Is he going or not? And, you know, they essentially, from what I was hearing from a lot of the people that uh, are tapped in down there, they, they were essentially giving Cristobal 48 hours to either sign it or they were going to stick with Diaz. So they hadn't fired Diaz just yet. And I was just like, okay, this situation of all situations in this coaching landscape has been the weirdest. Um, you know, but I think both coaches landed on their feet. And I think both coaches will, you know, and I think that finally we might have Florida, the Florida rivalries might come back in full steam. You know, and I, this that's what I think I'm also most excited for is, you know, outside of really Florida State, unless they fire Mike Norvell today, which the fan base might enjoy, Miami and Florida made, got their guys, and they look like they're trying to get back to where they were. And I think college football is better when the state of Florida are all competing for who's the best team in the state of Florida. That also typically means one of the best, one of the best teams in the country as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, I like, I like that part of it for sure. So uh, getting these Florida teams back up to uh, prominence should be huge. We also had the transfer portal and there's just too much to sit here and rattle off Nick, but, and I'm particularly excited to hear what Xavier has to say about Spencer Rattler's landing spot here. But um, you know, uh, Spencer Rattler did go to South Carolina. We saw Quinn Ewers go to Texas uh, Bo Nix is on the moves at Calzada, Max Johnson, Lane Hatcher, Michael Penix. And this is just quarterbacks. 
So there's a lot of moving pieces. It's got to be the bane of your existence and giving you gray hair, this transfer <laughs> portal. Uh, so uh, your thoughts on the, the play. Oh, is it? Oh, I see it. I see it. It's coming in. Um, but uh, what, uh, I, where, where do you even want to start here? There's so much to go over. I know we'll go over a lot of this in the actual quote unquote off season, uh, you know, talking about team previews and stuff, but what do you feel like you need to talk about now in, as far as transfers go? Well, I think quarterbacks are, are, you know, in the forefront of, of everyone's mind when it comes to the transfer portal. And, and there are certainly uh, plenty of impact players at other positions. Um, you know, there have been a few offensive linemen who've, who've uh, moved around who will have a big impact, solidify a very, very important spot on the roster. You know, Michigan State, I mentioned part of their uh, success and, and high ranking uh, building off of what they did last offseason and, and into this year, um, they put together a, a really a, a, a solid trio of kind of edge rushers, linebacker, defensive end types who are uh, have had a lot of success already, but I'm sure will make an impact. And, and you know, Mel Tucker spent a, a bit of his time today talking about uh, those guys coming in. So, you know, there are impact players, just as we're talking, haven't even had a chance to update them in the, the team profiles yet, but Purdue landed a couple of big time uh, wide receiver transfers uh, today. So, you know, there, there are teams all over the country who are making uh, important updates to their roster and, and uh, filling holes and, and all of that. But the quarterbacks are going to be the biggest headline uh, grabbers and, you know, for, for good reason, make the biggest overall impact. So we don't have time to talk about, you know, all the rest, but just to hit on a few of the high-profile quarterbacks who've either entered the transfer portal or found a new landing spot, um, you know, since we last spoke, yeah, Rattler's the big one, the, the biggest probably. Uh, South Carolina was probably a surprise to most. In some ways it makes sense because Shane Beamer is there. He also brought along – uh, you know, within minutes after Rattler announced his commitment, Austin Stogner, who'd been a pretty productive tight end H back at Oklahoma, um, is also going to South Carolina. So there's familiarity there with uh, the head coach. Um, an opportunity to go in, you would expect, be the unquestioned starter from day one. There, you know, uh, the guy who ended up starting uh, most recently, Jason Brown, an FCS transfer has already entered the transfer portal there at South Carolina. So you would expect that that's going to be Rattler's job um, with, with a very little, you know, real competition, I think, for it. Uh, so it'll be fun to see how that plays out. But we've seen some big, big names. Um, you know, Quinn Ewers, who you already mentioned, left Ohio State uh, for Texas, one of the highest rated recruits of all time. We didn't see him on the field at Ohio State, but certainly expect that he'll be, uh, the projected starter will certainly compete with, you know, Casey Thompson, Hudson Card. Uh, be interesting to see if both of those guys return and and how that all plays out. Uh, Lane Hatcher, kind of an underrated uh, guy in the, uh, you know, at Arkansas State, had to fight for that job for the last couple of years, but has put up big, big numbers every chance. Or, you know, when he's been given an opportunity, he's flourished, uh, but has left Arkansas State. Uh, also former Alabama quarterback, uh, and landed at Texas State. But other guys, you know, Michael Penix went from Indiana to Washington, followed uh, a coach that he had had familiarity 
with. Um, but then guys who we still have to wait and see where they will land. Keaton Slovis, three-year starter at USC, former you know Pac-12, uh, all, all Pac-12 performer in the transfer portal. Bo Nix, former five-star, played a lot of football at Auburn, multi-year starter. Certainly both of those guys have had, you know, a little bit of a roller coaster career, but when they're good, they're they're really good. So it'll be interesting to see uh, where they land. Zach Calzada, starting quarterback, you know, really a backup, got, got uh, the job after, uh, you know, through injury, but led Texas A&M to a win over Alabama, uh, had had some really, really bright moments. He's moving on. Max Johnson from LSU, been a starter for the better part of two years there. It looks like he might be, you know, slotting in there behind Calzada, Texas A&M, because his younger brother uh, has committed to, and, and I believe by now signed with Texas A&M. So, you know, that's just the, the very, very tip of the iceberg. We're seeing multi-year FBS Power 5 starters former All-Pros, former you know, Heisman Trophy candidates uh, in the transfer portal. So it's, it's already wild. It's going to be even more wild uh, over the next few months. But yeah, just you know, <laughs> very, very briefly, uh, some big-name quarterbacks on the move. Xavier, I mean, I just got to hear what you think of Spencer Rattler going to South Carolina. So uh, any other ones you want to talk about, please feel free, of course. But that's the one I want to hear. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna be slanderous to two people at one time. I'm gonna go two birds with one stone. Let's first talk about the mass exodus that's happening at Georgia Tech right now. Obviously, Jameer Gibbs has announced his, um, you know, decision to go into the transfer portal. And just before we started the podcast, four more Georgia Tech players have decided to go ahead and enter the transfer Jeez. portal. Uh, I don't know, you know, it's, you know, people just want to leave Atlanta. At this point, I mean, but you guys can come to Georgia State. You guys don't have to leave. You guys can even stay in the same housing <laughs> unit if you wanted to. You know, it's not that long of a drive. Um, and then Spencer Rattler announcing across South the street, Carolina. right? Exactly from Midtown to downtown. Come on, it's not that hard. Um, for Spencer Rattler going to South Carolina, personally, I love the move. You know why I love the move? Because now he actually has to play a defense. Now we can't. Now, now we get the. No, uh, no, hold on. I, I, I will admit. <laughs> I will admit that I was wrong about Oklahoma's defense, but there's there's good defense in the Big Twelve now. Baylor, solid defense. Iowa State, solid defense. The the conference has changed now. Yes, Rattler will play. You know, maybe there's a a, a step up in just the overall talent level, but the 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 narrative. The old narrative of they don't play defense in the Big Twelve is no longer true. So I have to I have to stop you there. Uh, but I can I know. can't confirm or deny that because anyway. I watched a year of Texas. So you know the other uh, reason Texas why I'm so excited for this. That's fair. That's fair. I mean Texas Tech I think would also be another. Ex- Anyways, um, <laughs> another reason why I'm so excited for this is because Georgia State actually plays South Carolina next season. So. In the event that he is able to start right away, which I feel like he may be able to because I don't remember how many games in which he played this year, but I think he should be an immediate starter. We could see – I get to see Spencer Rattler in person. You know, this year I got to see Sam Howell. And this Next year I possibly get to see Spencer Rattler. I just think for me this is going to be a fun, fun year because they also have to go – they also play A&M. They play at Arkansas. Like I said, they, they're going to have some really big games. Obviously they play Clemson year in and year out. And, and for me, it's – for all intents and purposes, I feel like everybody thought Spencer Rattler was, was going to make a glamorous move. 
And what I mean by glamorous, as I mean, I think he was going to go to maybe Pac a high 12. profile, yeah, a Pac-12 school, maybe get back to the West Coast, or excuse me, go to the West Coast or something, or rather like that. Going to South Carolina, I genuinely feel like will give him an opportunity to really earn his way back into the heart. Right. That, that's and, what I was thinking too, yeah. Xavier, is that he can uh, he can earn his draft status back by exactly. making South Carolina a good offense. And that's the biggest thing is when you look at South Carolina, as good as they were down the stretch this year, you felt like watching them, they just were missing something. You know, their receiving court actually was pretty solid this past year with, with, with Josh Van and company, but you felt like they were missing a quarterback. They were missing a, a signal caller. And obviously they had uh turmoil at the quarterback position as it was this year. Anyways, I think they had to go all the way down to their third stringer by the end of the year, just bit, clearly based up on injury. Yeah. They had to take a, a graduate assistant off the staff mm-hmm. and put him back <laughs> on the field. So, yeah, yeah you know, I, I, I think, you know, kudos to Shane Beamer because they also got Austin Rodner in that situation. So they're picking up now one, but two talented pieces to add to that offense. But I like the idea of Spencer Rattler going to a South Carolina team and being able to compete because when you look around the, the SEC next year, especially the SEC East, the quarterback position is going to be a, a topic of conversation coming into the year. Obviously, we look at possibly JT Daniels being the quarterback at Georgia if he's deciding to stay. Hendon Hooker is coming off of a pretty good year. Anthony Richardson is taking the reins at Florida going into next season. Uh Oh God! You forget, I, I forget Kentucky's starting quarterback. It's not Will Levis. That's the right name. Yeah, Will Levis. Yeah, Will Levis. You know, and so you look around the SEC East, and the quarterback position next year is is going to be a topic of conversation now, and that's going to just, if anything, help Spencer Rattler and his possible draft status. The only other people for me that I'm extremely excited to see where they go, AJ Martinez for me. I got it. I can't wait to see where he goes. I think. You know, we, we've been maybe maybe the Heisman dark horse can be said once again for Adrian Martinez. No, come on. Yeah, I, I'm gonna. Hey, depending on where that he lands, ship is sailed. Come on, you say that, but if he went to Washington, it's not as it's, you know hasn't sailed for me. And I I think personally that would be a great destination for him. I think Washington needs a quarterback. You 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 remember I said I don't believe in Dylan Morris. I think they could use a quarterback of his caliber. So if you're talking about him, I think that he's a guy who could obviously make waves uh, in college football. I think Michael Penix needs a good year next year. He had a very uh, underwhelming year after kind of taking, you know, Indiana to uh, heights that we hadn't seen them the year prior. And so I think he needs a really, really good year. And the last thing I'll hit on is some of the receivers that are cut, that are leaving Bo Corrales. We'll see what we'll see what he's able to do. Uh, Frank Ladson leaving Clemson, I think, is going to obviously make some school very, very happy. But for me, like, oh, and Micah Pittman possibly leaving, or excuse me, Micah Pittman leaving as well is going to obviously make a receiving, you know, a receiving room very happy. And, and the saddest part to me about all of this is that I genuinely think all the top running backs that are in this transfer portal, I think they may both end up at Alabama. I'm going to be honest with you. I think Jameer Gibbs. <laughs> May end up at Alabama. I think Zach Evans is a possibility at Alabama as well, as that is a position group that they need right now. And it's just depressing to think that even though they miss out, even you know the, the Alabama's weakest point right now, which may be their running back room, could once again be, be one of their strengths going into next season. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say that it's uh, terrible or anything, but yeah, yeah, yeah I, it's yeah. disappointing that those guys wouldn't go to other scenarios. But look, if you're them, and you can go to Alabama and then exactly. immediately get drafted into the NFL. I mean, I think you kind of have to do it, right? Yeah. So, uh, just An- the way another it works. name, just real, real quick, putting an end to the transfer conversation that we'll we'll need to uh, know about and we'll hear a lot about, I'm sure, in the the coming week or two. 
uh, Cameron Ward from the FCS level. Yes. Incarnate Word. Incarnate Word. He's going to make somebody uh, really, really happy. He's going to be a big domino in the, I, I have in heard. the quarterback competition as well. He's got offers from Ole Miss and a few other uh, Power 5 programs. His head wow. coach just left to, to, go to become the State. offensive coordinator at Washington State. Uh, so yeah, he, he's a, he's a name to get to know, uh, just a really, really exciting player and, uh, is certainly going to be somebody, I mean, maybe, maybe he's the next Bailey Zappi who we'll be talking about here in a second. Yeah, I, exactly. I, yeah. He, he reminds me on film watching him. He reminds me a lot of Derek King and Malik Willis. I'll be perfectly honest with you. He has, he has Malik Willis type arm talent and he's at the, as athletic as, as Derek King right now. I'll just say what it is. We'll see what it does on the FBS level, but his film, I was odd and if he ends up at Ole Miss I think it'd be perfect person well we got a lot to run through here now that we got through that this is just the news and notes here that that we got through so now let's get into the actual meat here and talk about some of these bowl games and we're going to start in the Bahamas Bowl Middle Tennessee versus Toledo Toledo is a 10 and a half point favorite the over here is 51 Nick so um where are we going in the Bahamas Bowl here so I will try my very best because we've got about double the games that we normally do to, to roll through these as quick as we can. So we'll change it up just a little bit, start with our projection, and then just uh, move on from there a little bit. So uh, Middle Tennessee and Toledo. Toledo is a team that our numbers for years have loved. They recruit at a really high level for the MAC. Uh, you know, Jason Candle as a head coach at different times has been considered maybe – uh, an up-and-comer, uh, took over for Matt Campbell when he left for Iowa State. But uh, really, in a lot of ways, Toledo's been a, a bit of a disappointment. I mean, they're number one in our MAC power rankings, number 55 overall, but they finished 7-5. and five. They lost a handful of games where, you know, they had a, a talent advantage. And Toledo is a team in our preseason that we, uh, you know, they were an official pick for, uh, and over. They were one where our projection saw a pretty big edge, and they have disappointed. Lost to Eastern Michigan, lost to Central Michigan, lost to Northern Illinois before we knew uh, that Northern Illinois was as good as it was. But we've seen, you know, on, on the other side of things, that they've got the potential to step up and, and play with just about anybody. They put a real scare into Notre Dame in week two, had an opportunity to win that game. So uh, Toledo is a tricky team to nail down, but they have a, a ton of talent. And Bryant Kobach, one of the best uh, group of five running backs in the country, uh, he is near a 100-rated player. He's he's a 99.69 right now. So uh, a big game in the Bahamas Bowl. He'll finish his career uh, most likely as a, a maximum 100-rated player in our projections and potentially you know, set himself up to be uh, an NFL draft pick. I think he's uh, certainly got that potential. He's been one of the most productive running backs in college football and a ton of fun to watch. Daquan Finn took over at quarterback, uh, relatively, you know, uh, kind of fought for that job a little bit. Carter Bradley had been the starter coming into the year, but Finn won the job, wrestled it away, and has played at a really high level since. They've got a deep receiving core. Uh, guys like Bryce Mitchell, Denzel McKinley-Lewis, Devin Maddox, Isaiah Winstead, Matt Landers, former Georgia uh, four-star uh, recruit. So Toledo has a ton of firepower on offense. They've also got uh, you know some great pass rushers 
on the defensive side of the ball. Jamal Hines is the name to know most. Uh, he, I think, has an NFL future as well. So Toledo's got a talent advantage in this game that's pretty big for a group of five matchup. They're almost a double-digit favorite in just talent edge, which is pretty rare uh, when you've got two, two teams uh, of similar conference strength and, and similar strength overall. But you factor that in with their – uh, you know, just just some success on the field. I mean, they were, uh, as far as team performance goes, uh, 52nd nationally on offense, uh, 23rd nationally on defense. So they were top 40 team overall on the field. Um, they're rightly favored and, and by double digits. Our projection, as I mentioned, has it closer to a uh, two-touchdown uh, spread. We think this game will be a little higher scoring. Our projected final score is 36 to 23. But as I mentioned, Middle Tennessee, or excuse me, Toledo has disappointed at times. And in bowl games, uh, you know, a, a double digit spread makes me a little bit nervous because Middle Tennessee has, you know, finished the season pretty strong. They've got talent as well, especially at the running back and receiver positions. Um, you know, they brought in a lot of transfers in, in recent years, but then uh, at receivers specifically, they've got some experience that they've leaned on. Guys like uh, Jaron Pierce, Jimmy Marshall, who's transitioned from being a, a big receiver to tight end. Uh, they've got some real speed there in guys like C.J. Wyndham, D.J. England Chisholm. Uh, they've got playmaking ability. They lost their starting quarterback mid through the year. They lost their replacement to injury. So that position is, is you know, not quite – uh, doesn't rate very well, very highly in, in our rankings, probably makes this a bigger point spread than, than you might expect, especially when you consider they've got some, uh, you know, some really highly rated defensive players as well. All conference guys like DQ Thomas, Reed Blankenship, who's going to be, uh, you know, playing it at, uh, in the uh, all-star games for NFL draft showcases. Uh, so this, this will be a fun one to watch. It's one that Toledo should win. We project them to cover. But Toledo, you know, is a difficult team to trust. So it wouldn't shock me if this game was a little bit closer than our projection. But we see this as, as one of our bigger edges of, of this group. See it as closer to a two-touchdown uh, projection than, than the 10-and-a-half that we've got right now. Xavier, who do you like in the Bahamas Bowl here? I, I, I like Toledo. I know that they're tough to trust here, but I think it's – for me, it's the Toledo passing defense against mm -hmm. uh, Middle Tennessee that can be a little one-dimensional. So uh, I like Toledo. I'll probably take the under here too. But what do you yeah. like here? Yeah, and, and when you look at when when you make that statement, Scott, this is what happens a lot of times in bowl games. Is when we get into bowl games, whatever is the best is what typically shines through. And being a one-dimensional offense really tends to hurt you when you have this little time to kind of scheme against a team. Obviously, their season ended very, you know, two, you know, a week or two ago. When you have this little time to kind of scheme, it makes it a little bit more difficult to be more, you know, you see teams a lot of times get cute in these ball games. They try to steer away from what maybe a team like, you know, Middle Tennessee does really well. And I just, I, I, as much as you say, hey, you know, you can't really trust Toledo in this situation, I do because I think I've seen Toledo play in different forms of games this year. I've seen Toledo win in a shootout. I've seen Toledo, you know, also hold teams to under, you know, 15 points in a game before. I, I just think as, as up and down as Toledo has been all season, I think in this game, I, I have a little bit more trust in them in Middle Tennessee, who I think this year has been 
you know, especially coming into this game, has been a little bit too uh, one-way traffic. They're not a team, in my opinion, who can go out there and score 40, uh, 40 in this game to win it if they need to. The only time that they've done it this year was against FIU in Connecticut, both of those teams being obviously pretty porous. You look around the other games in which they even won, they really struggled to put points up on the board. I think when you look at the Toledo team, I think they can win this game. I don't, I'm not going to say handedly because it's bowl season and you never know what happens. I still remember last year thinking that San Diego State's defense was just going to dominate, and it didn't happen. So I, I'm going to go with Toledo here. I think they go, I, I'm going to go with the under as well. But I do think that Toledo is able to get the win in this game. Should be a fun one for sure. A lot, lot of good games here too. The uh, Cure Bowl is uh, Coastal Carolina 10.5-point favorites versus Northern Illinois. The over here is 63-and-a-half, Nick. Um, uh, I, I think it's hard to pick Northern Illinois, but they have been strong on the second half of the season. This is, to me, going to be a time-of-possession game because these are both two top-15 time-of-possession teams. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and uh, as far as our projections go, this is actually our biggest edge of – this group and, and potentially a bowl season as a whole, the, the official uh, point spread that we uh, use in our uh, article that we publish or, you know, our, our piece that we publish to our Patreon supporters was 10 and a half. And we see it as a 17 point game, 17 and a half, really uh, coastal Carolina, heavy, heavy favorite. That makes me really nervous. And on the one hand, uh, coastal Carolina, you know, ranks really, really highly in offensive team performance, really highly in team performance overall. But they're fifth on offense, top 10, both passing and rushing. I love Grayson McCall, Javion Hiley, Isaiah Likely, uh, you know, his top two playmakers in the receiving core, uh, Hiley, the wide receiver, and, and likely one of the best tight ends in the country. They've got a pretty deep running back group. Shamari Jones has taken on a bigger role in recent weeks because Reese White's been injured. Uh, Braden Bennett might be the, you know, up and comer there. Redshirt freshman is, has uh, been pretty productive. And then, you know, the, the defense is solid, not necessarily spectacular, but they've been playing it right around a top 40 level, 41st in overall uh, defensive team performance, 40th against the pass, 56th against the run. But Northern Illinois is obviously a very, very dangerous team. I mean, last uh, in our last show in the MAC championship game, Northern Illinois was on the, the other side of our biggest edge, and they proved us wrong. We had Kent State as, you know, eight-point favorite or, or what have you. Uh, Northern Illinois not only won, but just dominated that game and really looked like a completely different defense. I mean, Northern Illinois ranks 125th in overall defensive team performance, 117th against the pass, 121st against the run, and they – just held Kent State, one of the most explosive offenses in the country, completely in check. And I mentioned it, you know, just briefly that uh, Northern Illinois had been in some ways kind of a, a little bit of a lucky team. I mean, uh, you know, that might not be totally fair, but they've been, they, they've won some close games and they won some games where some of the underlying uh, statistics don't always, you know, quite line up but they've just they've absolutely proved everybody wrong all season they can run the football they've got a deep one of the maybe one of the best running back trios of a group of five team with jay ducker uh clint rakovich who's kind of a uh they call him a fullback he, he is a multi-use guy 
uh, red zone type guy, can catch balls out of the backfield. Uh, but then Ontario Brown is a true freshman and one of the most talented uh, guys that they've had there in a while. He's broken off of, uh, just a few huge runs in recent weeks. And, you know, he's a guy who was a, a four-star level recruit who found his way to Northern Illinois and, and has the talent to be one of the best, you know, players at that level. But Ducker is a redshirt freshman. So, you know, at, at the very least, they'll have that one-two combo, uh, you know, in future years. And, and it just makes them really, really dangerous. But they can throw too. You know, Rocky Lombardi has been uh, a solidifying force at the quarterback position for them after he transferred in from Michigan State. Trayvon Rudolph has stepped up, had a huge game, like a 300-yard game uh, last month that obviously, you know, raised his overall statistics, but he's taken his game to another level after Tyrese Ritchie went down with an injury uh, in early November. So, um, you know, Northern Illinois is going to test that uh, Coastal Carolina offense. You mentioned the, you know, time of possession. Both teams play at a, a relatively, you know, methodical pace. So I, I you know, I kind of like, even though they both end up, they can, they can score points in bunches because they do uh, have a, explosive abilities on the ground, but can also hit some big plays through the air. Uh, I, I like the under. So 39-22 is our final score. That makes me really, really nervous. Yeah, Coastal could, uh, you know, could win this game and it, it could perhaps be a, a big win, but Northern Illinois has just been a team that, that just can't, you know, can't be held in check. Basically can't, you know, they're, they're so far past expectations. It's, it's, it makes me so nervous. I, I, I wish our projection were closer. I wish this wasn't our biggest edge, uh, but we see it a little bit uh, lower scoring than the 63 and a half. I do like that, uh, but we are on coastal to win by 17 a big edge that I think is probably a little too big, but you know, it wouldn't shock me if they win by uh, two touchdowns or, or something like that. If things bounce the right way for coastal, because they have been one of the toughest, uh, you know, one of the best offenses in college football, statistically going up against one of the worst defenses statistically, even though Northern Illinois last time out, you know, was a completely different team on that side of the ball. So will they be able to carry that over or will they be the team that they were earlier this year? This should be a, a, a really, really fun matchup, Friday. I mean, I think it's going to be fun for sure, Xavier, but I do – I like Coastal. Um, I, I think it'll play a little closer, but I think Coastal is just better on both sides slightly than NIU, which usually adds up to a double-digit victory here. So how do you see this game playing out? Yeah, I, I really like Coastal in this game. I think that when you look at Coastal, the, the problem I have with Northern Illinois is even though that they, they proved us wrong in the in the MAC championship, their games are just a little too tight for me this year. You know, I, this is a team that is 9-4 and four and easily could be, you know, 5-8, and eight, you know, 5-8, and eight, or, or excuse me, yeah, 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 five and seven. You know they have a they've had a lot of one possession games this year, beating Central Michigan by one, Ball State by one, uh, Buffalo in overtime. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And, and when you have a lot of those games, it, on one end, it, it's a confidence booster because you know you can you know you can win a game that is a tight one, even if it's in a one possession. But at the same time, you almost feel to yourself, when does the luck? in a sense, run out because in those one-position games, yeah, it's talent, but also you get a little bit of luck in those. And also for Coastal, when you play at Coastal, you kind of feel like you almost have to be perfect. That offense is just that explosive, and sometimes it's humming that well 
that to beat them, you almost have to be perfect. I mean, look at the, the couple of losses that they have on the year. Georgia State was literally perfect in that game and only won by two. You know, and App State against them earlier in the year, once again, pretty much for the most part, perfect in that game. That was probably Chase Bryce's best game of the year against Coastal Carolina earlier in the year. Same thing goes for Darren Granger and, and Georgia State earlier in the year against Coastal as well. And so when you when, when that's the case, and also obviously having Grayson McCall back for them will be huge uh, in this game. You know, and I think he got a little bit of the rust off against South Alabama. Uh, obviously, they did not play in, in the uh, Sun Belt Championship game, but I think he got a little bit of the rust off in that ball game in particular. I think this is a game that's really coastals to lose. I don't know if North Northern North Carolina, if Northern Illinois can keep up with this offense for four quarters, uh, and for Northern Illinois to really win this game, they're gonna have that running game is gonna have to be amazing. Uh, it's gonna really have to be what what is able to, you know, uh, blow up this game. Time of possession, keeping the ball away from Grayson McCall in that offense because, like you said, Scott, even though this offense is as explosive as it is, they hold the ball for a very long time. They're there yeah. as somebody who can control the clock. And it's and it's really weird because they do so by still beating you with like a 20-yard pass in the same drive. So, you know, and so with Coastal being that good and being able to slow it down and speed it up if necessary, I think Coastal wins this game. Uh, and I will say they win this game pretty handily. Yeah, it, it's it's going to be a fun one for sure. But I, I'm with you, dude. I think that uh, I, I think Coastal does win this game. But I think this next one is going to be closer than people expect. And I'm uh, was a little surprised. To see the spread only at three. It's the Boca Raton Bowl, uh, WKU versus App State. Uh, App State a three point favorite. Sixty eight is the over. Um, Nick, I think WKU has enough offensive firepower to win this game. Um, I, I think just having the number one passing game and, uh, you know, App State didn't play a particularly rough schedule this year. And um, in games against good passing teams, they did struggle a little bit. So they did. I think they saw one top 10 team that was Miami. And, uh, you know, I think 110 more yards per game WKU averages. Of course, WKU, uh, another team not playing a particularly terrible, uh, terribly hard schedule here. But, um, their defense is so bad that they're never going to get away from anyone here that they play. So I think that's what makes this game one of the most interesting on the schedule, but also probably one of the hardest ones to pick. What do you think about the Boca Raton Bowl? Yeah, so this is our first all three agree selection, and it's a little bit surprising. And if you've listened to us before, you know that our all three agree, which were uh, really, really good in 2020, have been the complete opposite of good in 2021. We're at 41.4%. So it's actually been a really, uh, you know, I've called it before the best bet in college football, fading our all three agrees. So perhaps that's a sign that, that you would like uh, WKU here because we, we have App State as greater than a three-point favorite in all three of our projections. Our official projection when we published was 4.1. That since changed because WKU got a little bit of good news on its roster uh, front with a couple of guys who'd entered the transfer portal, but apparently are officially uh, going to play in the game. Wide receiver Mitchell Tinsley, who's had a huge year as a number two guy there, and they're starting uh, right tackle. Both of those guys, it looked like, you know, might be looking for power five opportunities, but will play in the bowl game uh, first. So that's, that's come down a little bit, but it's still over three and a half, uh, in our projection, but we have app state with a 
greater than a five point talent edge. And then our stats only model, which we you know talk about before, but again, if this is your first time with us, uh, uses a, a weighted history the last three to five years um, with the, the most recent year, this year, of course, uh, counting the most, but still taking you know the, the past into account has App State as uh, about a seven point favorite. So it's, it's gonna be, of course, very, very interesting, kind of a little bit of a contrast uh, not necessarily in styles, but maybe in strengths, because App State's played top 10 defense. They're 10th in our overall defensive team performance. They've been top 20 on both sides of the ball, uh, including 16th against the pass, which is, of course, the most important because Western Kentucky has been, uh, you know, our number six uh, rated team in offensive passing team performance. Bailey Zappi had just an absolutely huge year, first year transfer from the FCS level. Houston Baptist, uh, in addition to Tinsley, Jarrett Stearns, who followed him, has been playing at an All-American level. I voted for him as an All-American. I believe he finished uh, number two, or excuse me, as a second team. Uh, maybe it was AP All-American. Um, but they've just been just one of the most fun offenses to watch in college football if you love a team that just spreads it out and throws it all over the place. Now, you know, with a team like that, Obviously, sometimes there are some trade-offs, and uh, they don't run the ball particularly well. They rank 96th in rushing team performance. It hasn't really slowed them down. I mean, they've given uh, some quality teams some difficult times. I mean, UTSA played a couple of shootouts uh, against, you know, obviously the Conference USA title game didn't go their way, but that was their first loss in, what, seven games? Uh, they came, came, you know, had a seven-game winning streak, and then before that, a three-game losing streak, but against quality opponents. Army's a bowl team. Michigan State's a bowl team. Indiana, we didn't know at the time, was going to be, you know, a, a, as poor of a record as they had, but uh, they were a, a team that's got some talent, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And Western Kentucky, I think, played, you know, played all three of those teams uh, pretty tough. So. This, I think, is going to be one of the more fun games to watch. And the only thing that that makes me a little more confident in our all three pick in the App State side of things is that App State's got some offense as well. And Western Kentucky is not terrible defensively, but they play outside the top 50 in our team performance, while App State is number 32 in offensive team performance, including, surprisingly, uh, a little bit better passing offense than you might expect. Chase Price has been a pretty good find, a bit of a, you know, big bounce back from his disaster of a year at Duke last year, but they've got a solid receiving core, even though Corey Sutton is out with an injury. They've got Thomas Hannigan, Malik Williams, uh, Jalen Virgil. They've got multiple tight ends with a lot of experience. So I, I, I think that in addition to a one-two punch at running back, Cameron Peoples and Nate Noel, who've been solid this year, I think App State's going to be able to give WKU enough problems defensively. You know, I don't think they're going to shut down Western Kentucky by any stretch, but I think they're going to be able to, to get a few timely stops. And I think their offense is strong enough that they're just going to be able to outscore WKU. So, you know, with that, being able to cover three, I, I, I think I feel okay about that. And that this game, even though our margin now is very, very small, three and a half, uh, I, I think they can get it, you know, into that four to a, a touchdown 
uh, range, but it should be a, a really, really evenly matched game and should be a ton of fun, of course. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I like WKU, but th- this one is a three-point game, Xavier, so mm-hmm. uh, I don't have a lot of confidence in this pick. If you're playing one of those confidence bowl things, uh, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I would put this game fairly <laughs> low. Um, so, uh, I mean, break the tie here. I got WKU. looks like Nick has App State, uh, both slightly. They're mm-hmm. not going to make it easy, whoever wins this game, I don't think, so. Uh, break the tie. Who do you like? I like Western Kentucky in this game. I, I think offense travels better than defense does in bowl games. I, I just think that when you when you have an explosive offense and when you're able to, you know, get the ball around, like I said, these teams have not had forever to scheme against the uh, the opposing team. Uh, obviously, the later we get in the bowl season, the less and less that'll be the case. But as of right now, App State's had, you know, 11 days to scheme for Western Kentucky. And I obviously somebody would say, well, that's normally what they, that's more than what they normally get. But in conference play, you have prior knowledge of last season and what they're able like, what they like to do. This is complete, uh, you know, this for, for the most part, this is completely, you know, in the dark uh, going into this game where they're able to, you know, where they're able to, you know, they're playing a, an offense that I think, in my opinion, like I said, is one of the most explosive offenses in the FCS and has played really well. You, you talk about the games in which they lost against their FBS, you know, FBS teams. They barely lost to Indiana. They lost by two. They barely lost to Army. They lost by three. And they still were able to put up 30 points against a Michigan State team, who obviously at one point in the year was ranked number two in the country. So this is a team that has been able to score against anybody and everybody who's been able to be, be put in front of them. And I don't think that stops with the App State, to be perfectly honest with you. And if it were to get into a shootout, I don't trust Chase Bryce enough to win a shootout for them, person to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, you know, I, I feel like Chase Bryce, as good as he has been, he's been obviously very much improved uh, from his year at Duke. Even with that, he's had some games where I'm just like, what are you doing? Uh, you know, you know, early in the year, he had a game against Louisiana where he threw for 135 yards and two interceptions. Uh, even in this previous uh, in the Sun Belt Championship game, he wasn't great. 12 of 30 for 119 yards. So as well as he has been this year, he has not shown me a consistency to trust him to win a game where he may have to, you know, throw for 30 or 40 times to keep his team in the ball game. And if that's the case, and that's what Chase Bryce has to do on that on December 18th when they play, I'm going to Western Kentucky all the way. Uh, so I'm going to go Western Kentucky to win this game because I, I think Western Kentucky is going to try to turn this into as much of a shootout and, and as much of a race as they possibly can. And I don't think App State has the offensive forces to keep up with them. Yep, it's going to be a fun one. I'm really excited to watch that game. I think it's going to be one of the closer ones that we have here, so it should be an exciting one. Uh, let's move over to the New Mexico Bowl here, Nick. And uh, New Mexico Bowl, UTEP versus Fresno State. Fresno State, 11.5-point favorites. 51 is the over. Um, uh, the running backs coach here for Fresno State going to take over. Lee Marks with the beer going over to Washington. Um, I think this game on the surface looks like a Fresno State trubbing. But Jay Kaner left and came back. Um, so there's a little weirdness going on there. And this is UTEP's first bowl game since 2014. So they're going to want to play hard in it. Uh, so I, I do think that there's a little more to meet the eye here. But I think my gut says Fresno State. Oh, how do you see this game playing out? My gut really says the over, by the way. I love the over <laughs> here more than picking in either team. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and you know, this is kind of the first example of how we do things a little bit differently. And, and this show, of course, we're uh, doing just that first week 
of games, part one of our bowl uh, projections. And, and we don't just release all of our projections at once. So we're not going to be a ton of help in the confidence picks, you know, that, that you mentioned uh, in, in the previous matchup. Uh, because there's so much fluidity today in college football with bowl rosters. I mean, we've seen guys opt out, go into the NFL draft. I mean, Texas A&M, I think, has five guys uh, who are not going to play in their bowl game uh, because they're off to the NFL draft. Uh, that's just the ones that we know about already. Nevada, we mentioned the coaching turnover there. They've had more than a dozen guys enter the transfer portal. A couple of guys, including quarterback Carson Strong, uh, go into the NFL draft and won't play in the bowl game. And Fresno State, not necessarily the exact same situation, but you mentioned it with Hayner entering the transfer portal. It was reported that he was headed to Washington. Apparently there was a little bit of a uh, eligibility issue there. So he comes back, but we don't know if he's going to start this game. Uh, it sounds like he's eligible to play in this game. And you would expect, even with an interim uh, head coach, you know, the offense, the terminology, all that's going to be the same. So you would expect that he'll be able to play without any major issue. But because there's some uncertainty there, our projections treated a little bit different. We do the individual player ratings. Hayner, of course, really highly rated, had a huge year, had 10 production points this season. So he's up to almost a 97 rating in our individual player ratings. But we, we have to consider the possibility that someone else starts or at least you know, plays a significant portion. So his backup, Jalen Henderson, who's a 72 and a half rated player, you know, that, that brings that quarterback position position down over 10 points. And, and that has uh, an impact in our projected point spread. So, you know, if, if Hayner was clearly going to start and play every snap of this game, our projection would be, uh, you know, Fresno state by double digits easily. Uh, they already have a pretty big, talent edge have a 17 and a half point talent edge their stat our stats only model which doesn't factor in uh players it's only how the team has, has played in the past is over a touchdown which is a, a pretty big margin uh for a bowl game even with the line you know where it is but if, if hayner was starting and playing and we knew that for a fact we'd have fresno state as a 12 and a half point favorite as it stands because there's a little bit of uh, you know, unknown there. Uh, we're on UTEP. We have it under, uh, you know, we have it in single digits. Have, uh, you know, Fresno State still to win the game, but our projected final score is 33-23. So we would be on the over, uh, excuse me, the over with you. And I, I think I like UTEP. I mean, you mentioned first time that they played in a bowl game in a long time. They should travel really well. I mean, a lot of these early bowl games, we're going to be watching, you know, some empty stadiums, some pretty empty stadiums. And so you won't expect a whole lot of atmosphere maybe. But UTEP traveling to the New Mexico Bowl with a fan base that, uh, you know, close by should travel well. I, th I think there'll be – That's a great you know, point. Even, the, even uh, though we don't calculate it because it's technically a neutral site, I think there might be a, a point – or so of, of home field advantage for UTEP in the game. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a great point. I didn't even think of that. So, um, I mean, I, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. Are, are, we, are you good? Is that everything? Well, on, so on just, just real quick. I mean, UTEP has an offense that even though running back is, is arguably their best position as a whole guys like Ronald Awad, Deion Hankins have, have had uh, moments where they've looked really, really good. 
they can be explosive in the passing game. Gavin Hardison, the quarterback, has a big arm. Jacob Cowing is a future pro, can stretch the field. Justin Garrett's had some, uh, you know, some big games in the past as well. And then UTEP has some pretty solid uh, defensive linemen. I praise Awana Wule. Uh, my apologies if I mispronounced that, but has been an All Conference USA performer, big time. Uh, you know, puts a lot of pressure on quarterbacks. Keenan Stewart has been solid as well. So, you know, UTEP doesn't have a lot of depth, obviously. They haven't played particularly well in the second half of the season. But I think they can hang with Fresno State, especially if Hayner doesn't play the whole game. So I, I, I like that we're on UTEP to cover. Although, like I, like I mentioned, if we knew Hayner was for sure going to play, our projection would be on the other side. And, and Xavier, this is an interesting game. You know, there's a lot of moving pieces here. So uh, how do you see the New Mexico Bowl going? Are you on the UTEP side or on the Fresno State side? Or uh, just avoid that and take the over like me? Yeah, man, I'm kind of leaning to go to Scott's way. I think that's the safest pick <laughs> in this situation. Uh, <laughs> I think this game is going to be high. I think it's going to be high scoring. I think this is going to be a really good. This is going to be a fun matchup. This is going to be one of those games. That, you know, uh, I think we both, we all can say that if you don't have anything to do on Saturday, sit down, grab some popcorn. It's going to be a really fun game to watch. It's going to be a lot of points. Uh, you won't fall asleep watching this, but let's just put it that way. Uh, I, I just, I'm going to go with Fresno here. Uh, I think I'm going to lean on the side of Fresno State. And I also, I think that I'm going to do that because down the stretch, Fresno State has been a little bit more convincing than UTEP has. Um, I, I think ever since UTEP maybe, you know, fell off the wagon a little bit, you know, uh, uh, losing to North Texas, they've kind of been reeling a bit. You know, they barely they, they barely beat a Rice team, then they get shellacked by UAB. I, I think they may be reeling a little bit down the stretch here, where Fresno State on the flip side of that, you know, outside of losing to Boise State, had didn't lose a game for almost three months or for almost two months. They're, you know, uh, you know beating beating the breaks off of San Jose State, beating New Mexico. They've looked really good uh, in those two matches. I got to sit down and actually watch the, the San Jose State game, uh, and Fresno State was in complete control all, all, all afternoon. So I think I'm going to go with Fresno State here as a team that's coming in with a little bit more confidence. Uh, absolutely, Nick, I think you also persuaded me a little bit by saying this could be a you – know, Somewhat of a home game for Fresno uh, in this game, as as they they should travel pretty well. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to go with Fresno State here as the team that is coming in with a little bit more confidence, which obviously helps during bowl season, uh, as you will be playing a team you know that you have very little to know about. But you know, coming in with one loss in your last six games, and coming into another you know another team that's had three losses in their last six games, I'm going to go with uh, with the Fresno State in this one. This uh, this next bowl game here, the Independence Bowl, uh, features our first-ranked team, number 13, BYU, as seven-point favorites against UAB. 54-and-a-half is the over here. And I think this is the first game where I look at it and I go, yeah, this is pretty easy BYU for me. Uh, UAB has just been a little too inconsistent here, Nick. I have some weird losses to Rice uh, being the, the biggest one that was just kind of eyebrow-raising. Um, and, uh, they had a couple other ones, but, um, I just, I think that I, I like BYU kind of walking away in this game. How, how do you see the independence bowl going? So I see it a, a bit differently and, and our projections more specifically don't see a big ed, edge on, on either side. Our uh, official projection is UAB to cover. We do have BYU as about a five and a half point favorite. Uh, so, you know, not 
not that we're expecting a ton out of UAB there, but looking at the other three models and, and sometimes in bowl matchups, they, they can be fairly consistent, but in this batch, we are going to see some that are a little all over the place, but, but this time they, they kind of all three line up. Uh, the other two actually favor BYU to cover, but still right around that, that, uh, you know, touchdown difference. So we've got a, a talent edge of 7.82 for BYU. And we've also got an 8.15 uh, projected spread in the, the prism, uh, you know, stats only model. So there's not a whole lot of, you know, one way or the other. And, and with multiple projections being on either side, uh, it, it's one I don't have a huge, you know, opinion on. Uh, the one thing that I'll be most excited to watch maybe is the running back position on both sides. I, I really enjoy watching Tyler Algier at BYU, who the last couple of years has been uh, among the most productive, if not the most productive running back in college football, just from a you know yardage and uh, scoring standpoint. Um, that We might see the last of him. He's a junior. He does have two additional years of eligibility left if our uh, records are correct here. But, you know, he's, he's big enough and fast enough and, and seems to have a little bit of NFL buzz behind him that it, it would not surprise me at all if this is our last chance to see him. Uh, BYU does, I think, have more playmaking ability at the quarterback position in Jaron Hall. They do have uh, some real talent at receiver. Gunnar Romney had a huge year last year before getting injured. He's had moments this year, but he's been uh, banged up at times. But Puka Nakua the uh, transfer from Washington has been a, a big find and really living up to the potential that he showed as a high four-star uh, recruit when he signed out of high school. So I think BYU offensively is going to be a lot to handle. I mean, they you know rank uh, in the top 10 in offensive team performance, top 15 on both sides of the ball. So they are, um, you know, understandably going to, going to give UAB some trouble, I think. Defensively, you know, they they haven't been as good as they were last season for sure, but they actually rank 88th in defensive team performance, uh, 77th against the pass, 82nd against the run. And, you know, on that note, UAB has a pretty solid running back as well. Uh, you know, Dwayne McBride came in the, to the season with a lot of hype to replace Spencer Brown, and, and he, uh, you know, had some uh, – I think he was – you know, number one, number two, maybe in average yards per carry returning uh, this year, had a huge, huge second half of the season. Unfortunately, he suffered an injury in uh, the, uh, you know, last game of the season, November 26th, and, and there were some conflicting reports as to whether or not he'd be done for the year. So that's that's something to watch. We don't have him uh, as, as listed as out right now. If he were out of this game, um, that would make things a, a little bit closer in our uh, projection to, to you know get closer to that BYU to cover, um, but we'd still be you know barely on on UAB to, to cover the touchdown. So uh, if McBride can play and if he's you know healthy, that's that's going to be a fun battle of sorts to watch the the two running backs there. But if he's not able to play. Um, you know, they, they have Jermaine Brown, who's done some good things as a runner and a receiver. They also have some talent at wide receiver. Trey Shropshire has had some big games this year. Uh, they've had some really, really productive tight ends as well. And Garrett Prince and Hayden Pittman 
Uh, Prince has had a, a big, big year at tight end. You and I and the, the ITL CFF weekly show, we mentioned, uh, you know, Garrett Prince, it seemed like on a, a semi-weekly basis. They're a little limited at, at quarterback. He's getting some draft buzz too, Garrett Prince is. Is he? Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, you know, he's he's had a great year and, and the measurables certainly are there. Um, and unfortunately, on the BYU side, Isaac Rex suffered an injury and, and won't be able uh, to go. So, you know, that, that would have, again, been a, a solid uh, matchup to watch or at least, you know, mirrored sides of, of strength for the two teams. The difference here, UAB plays pretty solid defense, and, and they've done really well against the run. They're top 10 in rushing defensive team performance, top 20 overall, and they've got a decent offense. You know, if you were to, to say it's strength versus strength, the UAB defense against the BYU offense, BYU would have an edge but not a huge one. If you look at weakness maybe versus weakness, the BYU defense, like I said, in the 80s in team performance against the UAB defense, or excuse me, UAB offense, which is 40th, and a little, you know, fairly evenly uh, matched, 44th passing, 32nd rushing, that's a, a little bit closer. So if I'm trying to sell myself on UAB to cover, to get in line with our projection, it would be that their weakness isn't as weak as BYU's weakness, if that makes sense. But I, you know, don't necessarily love the quarterback position. Uh, UAB has suffered a couple of high-profile uh, transfers. Christopher Mole, who's a 100-graded player, starting safety multiple years, has entered the transfer portal, looking it seems like for a uh, Power Five opportunity. So that's a big loss. Tyler Johnston, who's been a starter there at quarterback, is in the transfer portal, even though he's been injured and, and not necessarily on the field uh, most of the year. So. Like many of these games, a lot of moving parts here, but uh, we're on UAB to cover, but not a big edge. Javier, who do you like in this game? Uh, you know, we're uh, Nick and I are, are kind of opposites here. UAB versus BYU in the Independence Bowl. I got BYU. I think this has been a team that all year has proven that they they can, can pretty much compete with anybody. Uh, you know, them being ten and two. They, they've been pretty impressive. Obviously, the most impressive one of the year has probably probably has to go to them beating Utah early in the year, which, I mean, we've seen what Utah has been able to do uh, in the latter, you know, uh, over the last couple of weeks against Oregon twice. So, you know, that, that's got to be one of the more impressive wins. But even, in, like I said, in their losses, they've been they've competed. You know, they lose to, to Baylor by two touchdowns. I still think that that was a pretty close game up until the end where Baylor was able to add on kind of a, you know, garbage time touchdown just to extend the lead a little bit. Uh, Jaron Hall was pretty impressive in that game, 22 of 31, 342 and a touchdown, uh, you know, against a Baylor defense that Nick alluded to at the beginning of the episode or in, in the episode in general. That has been pretty good. Uh, and probably the best defense in the Big 12, I think, would be, wouldn't be be a, a crazy thing to say. You know, obviously, and then obviously the loss to Boise State once again was in that game for the most part, you know, and just, you know, couldn't figure a way out in the second half to, to take that lead and obviously win the game over a, over a Boise State team that a lot of people would say was underwhelming this year, uh, but Boise State still has the talent on display uh, week in and week out. So I'm going to go BYU here. I think UAB is has been okay this year. I think when you look at the rest of Conference USA, they were kind of just a team to separate themselves uh, in the conference, but I think that they, especially against some of the higher power offenses, they have really struggled. You know, the game against Liberty was something I watched this week when, when before the podcast. UTSA they struggled in that game as well to slow them down. And I think they're gonna, you know, they're gonna they're gonna 
have a problem having to start on Jared Hall and company in this game. Tyler Algier, uh, is, I think, is going to have a really good game. This is a guy for me that I've been watching for a while as a pro- as a possible underrated uh, day three guy in the NFL draft. I think he's somebody who could, depending on what kind of uh, combine he has, could really you know surprise some teams coming into the year. And I think you know Jared Hall has just you know been really steady. That's the word I would use for him. I, I don't look at his numbers and go wow, but I don't look at his numbers and think they're pretty underwhelming either. He's just been rather steady all year. Uh, he doesn't turn the ball over all too much. He, he typically keeps the ball uh, safe. And, I mean, to their credit, they were able to win a shootout over Virginia literally four weeks ago where they, they won 66-49. to 49, So they've shown that they can win in different styles as well. Uh, so I'm going to go with BYU in this game to win it pretty handedly. I'm not going to pick UAB to cover. I think BYU shows the talent and gap in this ball game uh, and is able to win this game uh, pretty convincing. We go over to the Lending Tree Bowl, which is Eastern Michigan versus Liberty. Uh, Liberty is a nine-point favorite. 58-and-a-half is the over here. Um, I mean, this game, Nick, all depends on what Malik Willis shows up because the dude turns the ball over a ton of times in their losses, and he keeps those turnovers down in their wins. So I think he is obviously the biggest factor. I think it's 17 passing touchdowns to three picks in their wins seven touchdowns to nine interceptions in their losses so far this year. And um, I think he is the biggest factor in this game, which is not a surprise to anyone, but I also think it's going to go a long way for his draft uh, stock. So with a little bit of extra time to prep, I think they um, make some easy throws from Lake Willis and Liberty wins this game by the spread here, but I, not with a ton of confidence. So who do you like in this game? Yeah, I, I completely agree about Malik Willis. I mean, it, it's going to be, uh, will he show sort of that incredibly, maybe in some ways, unlimited ceiling uh, or potential that we saw mostly in, in 2020? Or, like you mentioned, the kind of up and down play uh, that, that was a little more uh, the case this season. Uh, Willis is, is incredibly fun to watch. Um, just, just would love to see a little bit more consistency, but I think that he certainly will be, uh, the best player in this game and, and certainly, uh, will have the biggest impact. So, uh, in part because of Willis, I mean, he's a, you know, mid nineties rated player in our, uh, player ratings. Liberty has a big edge at that position. Eastern Michigan has solid quarterback as well. And Ben Bryant and also some playmakers at receiver guys like, uh, Hassan Beydoun, Tanner Canoe, who came on as, uh, you know, was injured most of the first half of the year, but but really gave them a lift in uh, the last couple of weeks of action. Um, but Eastern Michigan, the, the numbers don't necessarily show it. I think they're a little bit more explosive, a little bit more, uh, just a little bit better on offense than even our team performance numbers show because they've, they've kind of, uh, with Canoe and, and with getting maybe a little bit healthier, uh, the second half of the season, I was pretty impressed with what I saw from Eastern Michigan, but they rank 80th in offensive team performance, 45th passing, 91st running. Um, and, and so, you know, are they going to be multidimensional? Are they going to be able to run the, the ball on Liberty? Are they going to be able to play a little bit better defense because they rank 113th in defensive team performance overall and 111th running. And even though Willis is, you know, the, the big time uh, name to know here, it's not just because he's throwing the ball all over the place. Liberty can run. They rank uh, 22nd in rushing team performance on the offensive side of the ball, 
Willis is part of that, but they've also got, you know, Joshua Mack, they've got Shedro Lewis, um, you know, TJ Green, the transfer from Utah, uh, has, hasn't quite got going this year, but, but gives them some depth at that position. They've got some playmakers on offense as well. I've, I've liked some things uh, I've seen from Kevin Shaw. Demario Douglas got out to a, a huge start this year. CJ Daniels has had his moments. Um, so, you know, Liberty, I, I think, is going to be able to score on that Eastern Michigan defense. I mean, we're talking about the 31st, or excuse me, 34th uh, ranked offense in the country in team performance against that triple digit Eastern Michigan uh, defense. And even though I think Eastern Michigan is a little bit better on offense than their 80th ranking, Liberty's the top 35 defense. They're ranked 34th in defensive team performance, 23rd against the pass, and has a, a lot of pass rushing ability. And guys like, uh, you know, Darrell Johnson, Akil Washington, Trishon Clark. So this is a pretty big edge for us. Um, Liberty has been a difficult team to trust this year. Eastern Michigan is always a team because talent uh, metrics are, are, you know, the biggest part of our formula and the recruiting numbers and, and things like that. Just, you know, Eastern Michigan ranks abound, uh, you know, in the, in the 120s and a lot of those numbers. It, it sometimes underrates Eastern Michigan, but we see this as a double digit uh, that Liberty should be favored by double digits. It's, I think our second biggest edge, uh, you know, numbers wise, uh, just behind the, the coastal Carolina over Northern Illinois. So like I said, there makes me a little bit nervous, especially because Liberty has not been super consistent this year. The talent edge, even though I mentioned Eastern Michigan ranks so low in a lot of those numbers, the talent edge number is only five here. So that's, that's quite a bit closer, but the stats model likes, likes Liberty as well by double digits. So uh, our projection is 37-24. That would be over. That would be, you know, Willis really getting, getting going, that running game getting going, I think, uh, and, and Liberty being able to pull away. I'm hopeful that happens for our numbers, but uh, it would not surprise me if, you know, that inconsistency for Liberty and maybe Eastern Michigan be a little bit underrated Makes me nervous. Wouldn't surprise me if Eastern Michigan finds a way to keep it close. Xavier, who do you like? Uh, are we sweeping this with Liberty? Or are you going to uh, uh, take the points and go with Eastern Michigan? <laughs> now, I'm going to go with Liberty here, and you're absolutely right. It depends on what Malik Willis decides to show up. We've obviously seen him play uh, well above his ability this year, and we've also seen him have games that are just absolutely mind-boggling. Obviously, the one I'm talking about is against ULM. Uh, but depending on, you know, really what he decides to do in this game, it's going to be on whether or not Eastern Michigan can can confuse him between zone and man. And that's something that ULM was able to do a lot of, actually, when I went back and watched it, is ULM was able to really disguise what they were wanting to do on the back end, uh, which led to a lot of high throws from Malik Willis, which typically when you throw high, that means you're throwing it late, just trying to make a play. Uh, and sometimes you can get a kid to force it. Obviously, Malik Willis knows that this is going to be his last game, more than likely in college football, and whether or not he can go ahead and put his last film as his best film outside of obviously, you know, any in, in, in pre or excuse me, post college uh, bowl games. This is really going to be his last game, and so if you can get him to press, and that is the major key with getting into Malik Willis is getting him to press and try to make throws that he's not comfortable making. Uh, these are typically throws across the middle of the field, uh, which he typically throws high. 
Uh, ULM got a bunch of those out of him, which was uh, obviously their key to winning in that game, forcing, I believe it was three interceptions out of him in that game. Uh, so th- that's kind of the key of what uh, of what Eastern Michigan can do. And if they can do that, then Eastern Michigan might have a chance in this game. Uh, I-, I expect Malik Willis to go out there and try to be less of a pocket passer and kind of just let – all of his talents flow in this game, whether or not he wants to run for 80 yards on seven attempts or, you know, whether he wants to throw it, you know, 30 times. I think he has to really allow himself to just be a quarterback, just be, you know, the guy rather than an athlete, excuse me, rather than just being a quarterback, just being somebody who wants to sit in the pocket. On top of that, Liberty's a seven and five ball club, but their record doesn't necessarily equal what they've been this year obviously they had to play mississippi they also played louisiana they also played army this is a team that's had a pretty daunting schedule especially over the last month uh, in the month of november obviously playing two ranked opponents and army uh in that span is a lot uh also this will be their first game in almost a month uh they, they their last game was on november 27th so they've had plenty of time to get healthy and get reps in uh going into this eastern michigan game so i i think that you know They've pretty much been playing the waiting game this entire time, waiting for a team to you know play them in the bowl. So I, I'm I'm, exci- I'm expecting them to be a little bit more cohesive, uh, obviously healthy and raring to go. You know when when your last game was November 27th and your next game is until December 18th. I expect a little. I expect the team to come uh, a little bit more excited and ready to go, uh, especially when you're playing for a bowl as well. I think Malik Willis will come and allow himself to be the athlete that he is, rather than just trying to force himself into the pocket passer, which he's he's tried to do at times this year uh and, and if he can do that i think liberty wins this game pretty handedly to be perfectly honest the jimmy kimmel la bowl here call it what it is uh, yeah call <laughs> it what it is nick of course uh utah state versus oregon state here um uh, oregon state a seven point favorite 67 and a half very high over in this game but this is a passing offense versus a rushing offense in this game um, neither defense is particularly fantastic here. So how do you see this game playing out? You said it. I mean, Utah State has been fairly one-dimensional. I mean, you know, Calvin Tyler Jr. and, and uh, Elian Noah are talented running backs, but this has been Logan Bonner finding Devin Tompkins, you know, first and foremost, who's been uh, maybe with the, the possible exception of Jarrett Stearns, who we talked about at WKU, the, the most explosive uh, wide receiver in college football this year. And, and that's that's a, a word that I'm sure is completely overused. I'm sure I overuse it. But Devin Tompkins just explodes once he gets the football in his hands. And uh, I didn't see it coming, quite honestly. We talked a little bit uh, for CFF purposes that he was actually somebody that I wasn't super high on and, and actively was, was uh, avoiding but he has completely turned me around. He's been an All-American receiver this year, but they've got a pretty deep group as well. And then Tompkins, you know, hasn't put up uh, huge, huge numbers quite like he was in, in the uh, beginning of the season because, you know, Derek Wright has stepped up and, and uh, had some big games. Brandon Bowling, who, like Logan Bonner, followed head coach uh, uh, Blake Anderson from Arkansas State, has stepped up and had some big games. Justin McGriff is, you know, big target has had some moments. Jordan Nathan had a big catch uh, not not too long ago, very important. So, you know, Utah State, uh, I, I haven't had a lot of opportunities to, to take any victory laps this year because uh, week by week, as we've talked, our against the spread projections have been pretty poor. But 
season long, as we talked about last week, win total wise, we did really, really well. 65% on all of our win totals, almost 70% on the ones where we saw the biggest edges. Utah State, I, I said multiple times in the preseason, was the team I expected to have the biggest turnaround record-wise in the country. And, and, you know, 10 win season, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see, um, you know, Mountain West Championship coming. I didn't see them dominating San Diego State, but they have been just in, an incredible team, incredible turnaround uh, to watch. And, and in some ways we saw it coming because of the attention that we pay to, you know, transfer news and things like that. That's why we spend so much time in the off season. And, and we touched on a little bit today, but they were one of those teams that just dove into the transfer portal uh, just completely. And it helped them turn around their team quarterback defense. Uh, you know, like you said, not, not the best defense in the world. They ranked 65th in defensive team performance, but they solidified a lot of spots roster wise played better. And, you know, it paid off with a, a conference championship and the first uh, power five opponent in a bowl game that, that we'll be talking about Oregon state, you know, similar team. We actually had a pretty good read on Oregon state as well. Thought they could make it to a bowl chance. Nolan, a little bit of a surprise starting quarterback for them, but uh, really blossomed at times. I mean, not, not great stats week by week, but he's one of those that uh, a lot of the you know more advanced metrics and, and things like that, there are some real promising signs there uh, for the way he stretches the field, just sort of the way uh, that the offense runs with him. B.J. Baylor has stepped up and become a big-time running back for them. Uh, he and Deshaun Fenwick, who's been a little bit banged up, uh, and Trey Lowe give that running game just a, just a lot of ability there. They're in 14th in – uh, rushing offense team performance. They actually rank top 10 nationally in, in overall offensive team performance. And a lot of that has to do with the number one offensive line as far as our O-line performance ratings in the country. And we're not the only ones that, that noticed it. They were a Joe Moore Award finalist. Uh, Oregon State's offensive line has played like the best or one of the very best offenses in the country. Defensively, numbers are shaky. They rank 90th overall. 95th against the pass. So that's certainly, certainly going to be, you know, the big thing to watch. Can Oregon State slow down Devin Tompkins and, and that Utah State offense? They do have a big talent edge. The talent edge is 16 and a half points, which you would expect for, you know, most Pac-5, Pac-12, Power-5 teams going up against the Mountain West team. You would expect a, a pretty big number there. Uh, but when we look at the stats-only model, when we look at, uh, our projections overall, which take into account, you know, coaching ratings and, and past history, roster strength numbers, all of that, uh, we see it a, a good bit closer. We see Oregon State should be favored basically right on what the odds makers in the market have. We have it at 7.07, .07, so it's our tightest official projection overall. The stats-only model sees uh, pretty close to a toss-up, one-point uh, edge for Oregon State. So this game could go a variety of ways. There's clearly a more talented team. There's clearly a, a very even match as far as uh, a lot of the advanced stats that we look at and put that together. And it's our closest projection overall. So uh, we've got 33-27 as our uh, official projection. Um, actually, I think that's a misprint. I think it should be 34-27. We're, we're on Oregon State, but just by the slightest of margins, Expect this basically to play out 
uh, in a lot of ways, like the odds makers. Xavier, I mean, I, I, my gut, like Nick said, is going to play real close. So I'm just going to take the points and take Utah State, but I don't really like this game. How do you see this one playing out? Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more with you. I think this is a game that many people in that in that ESPN pick'em will pick Utah State purely based off of record. But I think that this is a game that could easily be a, a nail biter and come down to the wire. Uh, I think when you're looking at an Oregon State team, I think this is a team that consistently got better all uh, as the season progressed. Uh, once again, this is another team that's record could be completely different if their one possession games go the opposite way. This is a team that lost to Washington State by seven. Uh, you know, lost to Colorado in overtime by three. Uh, lost to uh, excuse me, you know, and, and so lost to Purdue by nine to start the year off. And we know the kind of year Purdue had. Like this is a team that easily could be a nine and three. You know ball club, you know, and that's just taking the, the one possession games out of out of the question. You know, maybe if the second half had been a little bit different for them and they had played, you know, the fourth quarter like they played the rest of the game against Oregon, maybe this is a team that would upset Oregon, you know, two or three weeks ago. You know, so, I, you know, and I, and I really like Chance Nolan. This is a gamer. This is a guy who's going to give you, you know, not uh, 100% through the air and on the ground if he has to. You know, he's going to put his body on the line for the team. This is a guy who has several has several rushing touchdowns on the year and has no qualms about putting his head down in the red zone and trying to get as many yards as he possibly can. Uh, I think this is going to be my new favorite quarterback now that Kenny Pickett's sadly leaving college football. As when as a, you know when we're talking about guys who you know put their body on the line for their team uh, on the on the opposite in Logan Bonner. Is a gunslinger. He's gonna throw it around the yard and, and try to put you in the in the hole very early on. And that's my only concern with Oregon State is that they have been susceptible to starting slow. Uh, and if they and they can't really start slow in this game against Utah State, this is a team that could easily be up fourteen to nothing at the end of the first quarter, and, and you're running up, you know, you're running up a hill. And I, I don't like that idea from Oregon State. That's why I'm gonna go with Utah State in this game. I think Oregon State scares me a little bit with the the way that their offense is trended. They get better as the game gets on. However, if you're already down 35 to 14 going into halftime, you might not be able to, you know, that, that, that won't be possible. And so I think Utah State's explosive offense may catch Oregon State even off guard a little bit. Uh, I know, obviously, you watch film, so that shouldn't. But it's one thing to see it on film. It's another thing to play against it. And, and you know, it's one thing to see a fast guy on film. Then you see him run by you, and you're like, oh, you're actually that fast in person. It's a completely different, uh, you know, situation. And uh, I think Utah State – you know, and hopefully, and records taken into account, Oregon State shouldn't take Utah State lightly whatsoever. Uh, you know, I understand they're you know a Group of Five program, but a lot of times in these in these Group of Five versus Power of Five, sometimes these Power of Five teams come out there thinking you know they're a little bit better than what they are, and that they're just going to kind of waltz in there and beat a Group of Five team that hasn't played anybody. You hear that all the time uh, when it comes to these bowl games, and then these Group of Five teams are like, "Yeah, buddy." We're better than what you think we are. Uh, so I'm going to go with Utah State here. I think Logan Bonner continues, which has been an excellent year for him. Uh, he's going to just continue to throw the ball around the yard, and I don't think Oregon State's going to have an answer for him. And, and too many times with Oregon State this year, they've had quarters where they just don't put points on the board. Like, they just don't. And you can't do that against this explosive uh, Utah State offense. I'm going to go with Utah State here. It's gonna be uh it's gonna be a close one, but I expect a lot of offense. So maybe the over is just the way to go there. But it is a big, big number at 67 and a half. So, you know, maybe it's just disagree. A fade. We're on the under. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it's just a fade all the way here. But um th this game, I don't know. I see a big mismatch in this game, but uh, you know, just looking ahead here, it looks like 
Uh, you're on the other end of the New Orleans Bowl that, than I am, Nick. Uh, Louisiana versus Marshall. Louisiana, a five-point favorite. 55 is the over. So how do we see this one uh, going down? This is another, uh, you know, our second all three agree, which is no longer necessarily the best sign. We did finally put up a winning record in all three agree uh, during conference championship games. So maybe we're, we're turning the corner here at the very end of the season. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're on Marshall. We think Marshall's has got the ability to cover. Now, one thing uh, that I, I will note, the way we do our head coach rankings, head coach ratings that are, uh, you know, a, a factor, certainly it's, it's, 15%, something in that line, and it's mainly just coach-specific team performance history. We don't change anything if that coach leaves during the season. Uh, it's just, you know, you can't necessarily predict whether or not that's going to be a good thing if a coach leaves. You know, some some cases, uh, especially the, the first uh, game after a coach fire, got fired this year, we saw that was a, a pretty consistent uh, sign where that team would bounce back and play maybe its best game. Uh, but when a coach leaves in the bowl season for a bigger job, you don't necessarily know, uh, is that team going to play worse? Not necessarily. So Louisiana still, you know, gets Billy Napier's uh, solid head coach rate. And, you know, Napier at, at this point, in the season would rank as our 34th uh, best head coach in college football. I, th I, I think that's fair. I mean, he'd probably be higher on a lot of lists that just use uh, opinion, but a lot of people also would, would expect that, you know, maybe Louisiana doesn't quite play as well without their, their uh, head coach, their longtime head coach taking a new job, leaving them for, you know, bigger and better opportunities, so to speak. Uh, but, but even though we keep Napier's, head coaching rating, we keep uh, the coordinator ratings and, and all of that the same, we're still on Marshall. We still think that they're going to be able to, to keep this game close, basically a toss-up in our projections, even though we do have Louisiana winning. And, and you know, I know you disagree, but I, I think that's where I'd rather be. Pretty much all else being equal in, in bowl season, I think I'd rather be on an underdog just just because there's not necessarily a data reason for that. I believe the last, you know, five years or what have you, uh, underdogs are covering at 51%. So not a huge edge there uh, by any stretch, but it just seems like to me this year in particular, I, I kind of, you know, am hoping for a lot of underdogs in, in our projection. So I, I feel like, you know, Marshall is, is on the one hand, you know, first time head coach, uh, getting through a full season, um, not necessarily, you know, uh, super highly rated. We only have one uh, one year of, of history for uh, Charles Huff there, but 52nd in our head coach ratings, really highly rated defensive coordinator. And Marshall's, a, you know, pretty good team, pretty solid team, ranked 51st in our uh, power rankings overall, third best team in Conference USA. The biggest question for them personnel-wise, is the health of quarterback Grant Wells. And he's a you know decently rated quarterback, 88 uh, overall in our uh, you know individual team ratings. Uh, he exited their last regular season game with an injury. They had to, to turn to former uh, walk-on Luke Zaban as, as their quarterback, who's a you know, pretty low 
rated player, the way we calculate things, that would be a drop off of about 25 points just uh, from one player to the other if Wells wasn't able to go. But it sounds like he's going to be fully healthy. Uh, we do have him listed as probable, and, and we actually have him uh, not even slash. So not even, like I said, with Hayner before, um, you know, we expect him to, to start and to play. And that probably is, is going to be a big factor here. If, if for whatever reason our information was wrong and he couldn't, you know, then, then Louisiana is going to be a, a bigger favorite in our projections. But Marshall's, I think, going to be able to run the ball. Raheem Ali, huge, huge year. Uh, at running back, just, you know, ton of, of rushing touchdowns. Uh, has been one of the best in, in Conference USA. They've got some playmakers and receiver as well. Tight end Xavier Gaines is one of the better tight ends, you know, specifically at the group of five level, but uh, can certainly hold his own, I think, against any opponent. Corey Gamage, Willie Johnson at, at receiver have had their moments this year. Jaden Harrison, a transfer, at, you know, SEC transfer from Vanderbilt, has had his moments this year. Uh, defensively, Marshall is not quite what they were under the previous coaching staff. They rank 61st overall, uh, but they they played pretty well against the pass, top 20 nationally in our team performance ratings. But, you know, uh, sometimes you, you look at the record, and Louisiana is 12-1, and one, and they've won a lot of games. They certainly have a, a solid quarterback in Levi Lewis. They have one of the best running back trios at the group of five level. And Chris Smith, Amani Bailey, and Montrell Johnson. Uh, you know, Kyron Lacey at receiver. Uh, I, I've liked in the past. Peter LeBlanc has had some uh, big games this year, and and they've got a very solid group on defense. Even though the numbers aren't you know eye popping, they're 40th in defensive team performance, 38th against the pass, and 50th against the run. Individual player wise, they've got some future pros. Uh, Chancey Minock probably being top of that list. I know he's already committed to an all-star game. Guys like Brian uh, Trahan at, at uh, safety and Zion Hill and uh, the defensive line have you know all-conference uh, history and you know have, have made all-conference teams in, in their past. So Louisiana is a solid team. I think they're rightly favored. Our projections just have this game a bit closer officially 27 26 is our final score so on the under and, and on marshall to cover all three models do agree with that including our stats only model actually has marshall uh to win the game outright so that's that's one to watch that's the first that's flipped in one of our projections where it actually says the wrong team uh is favored not officially fully the wrong team's favored just one of those models but uh anyway should be a close game Mentioned a little bit that UTEP might have somewhat of a home field advantage. Louisiana probably has a pretty big home field advantage there in New Orleans. So even though we don't officially count that in the projection, if you were to add a point or two uh, to our projection for Louisiana, uh, that that certainly would make some sense there. But uh, this should be a pretty you know close game. I'm glad that we're on the underdog, but I, I certainly wouldn't be shocked if Louisiana you know, plays like a 12 and one team and, and gets this win by more than a touchdown. Yeah. My whole thing with this game, Xavier and Nick, it's just the, the, the run game mismatch here, Marshall giving up 190 yards per game. Louisiana, um, you know, giving up a bunch too, uh, or, uh, Louisiana mainly being a running team here. Levi Lewis is not playing as well as he did last season, even though they were 12 and one. So, 
who do you like in, in this game, Xavier? Yeah, and I, and I think Levi Lewis is the thing that separates me uh, and why I think Louisiana wins this game and why I think it separates Louisiana from any other team in this situation. You know, Nick talked about the fact that Billy Napier is left of Florida. And I would be concerned about a team that didn't have a guy like Levi Lewis at their quarterback position. I mean, this is a guy who's been there for what feels like forever. I, I think finally it's his last year at Louisiana where he might have to leave. You know, but this is a guy who's been there for almost five years now. Uh, you know, he's been there since 2017. He can get he can rally the troops. He is a guy who can, you know, say, hey, I understand our coach is gone. I understand he's moved on to Florida, but we're not going to allow that to, to deter us from winning this game. Right. From from finishing this year off 13 and one um, and making, you know, and having another great year. We're not going to allow that to happen. I think we have a quarterback who can command the troops like he can and like he has at, at Louisiana in his time and has played in every big game that you could possibly can. When you look at a guy like that in the huddle. It means it means something different when he's telling you we're good, when he's telling you that we got this, when we can win this game. It's different because he's played in every big game that you could possibly ask of of a guy at his level. And, and you know, and he's won at a very high clip as well. So typically when a coach leaves for a bowl game, I would be very concerned. In Louisiana's case, not so much. I think Louisiana wins this ball game. Yes, Levi Lewis hasn't been as dynamic as he has been in the past. Obviously, losing guy like Trey Regis and Elijah Mitchell but what he had where he hasn't been as explosive he has taken the ball taken care of the ball better than he has maybe any year uh at Louisiana outside maybe 2019 this is a guy who's only had four interceptions on the year he, he doesn't make bad plays he doesn't take he doesn't uh make bad decisions excuse me and I think when you look at it that way Marshall in this game, for me, is going to have to be very opportunistic defensively if they're going to want to stay in this game with the way that Louisiana runs the football because you can't just key in on the backs, you know, like they did with Elijah Mitchell and Trey Regis. You now have to key in on Levi Lewis, who has taken a step further this year with his ability to run the football because they've asked him to. You know, this is a guy who's, you know, in games that they're winning pretty handedly is rushing for 40 plus yards a game and is now, you know, adding in the touchdowns as well. So I, I and, you know, and this is, you know, the, the numbers are 40, but this is taking with sacks counted. So we can only imagine what it would be with sacks not counted per game. So I think when you look at what, what Louisiana brings to the table, I think Marshall's just going to be a little overwhelmed here. Uh, Marshall's rush defense has not been good this year. And that concerns me with the team that it's a bad matchup. Some of these bowl games, records aside, is matchup versus matchup. And Marshall's run defense has not been good on the flip side. Louisiana's rush offense is probably the main part of their team. Uh, and I think that you're going to see Louisiana try to rally and, you know, really go out with a with a, uh, a thunderous win. Ah, I'm doing, I guess, a thundering hurt. See what I did there? <laughs> uh, against Marshall, where I, where I think they, you know, they quiet some of the, you know, analysts and Nick who may think that Billy Napier leaving may be an issue for them going into this bowl game. I got, I got Louisiana. I think they win this game pretty handedly. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I think Louisiana is just too, it's just too good in this game uh, and it's going to be a home game. They're playing, you know, two and a half, three hours North in, in New Orleans. And, you know, what's better way than to play obviously in a professional stadium indoors so no weather requirements whatsoever on, you know, the beautiful turf. I got Louisiana winning this game. Yeah. I mean, that that's another point we didn't even mention. So uh, I, I, like that too it's a factor that we didn't bring up here i didn't even think of it either is the uh home field advantage so um but let's go over to the next game here it is 
the Myrtle Beach Bowl, it just steeped in tradition, right, Nick? Of course, the Myrtle Beach Bowl. Everybody <laughs> knows it. Um, Old Dominion versus Tulsa here. Tulsa, a nine-and-a-half-point favorite. 53-and-a-half is the over here. But, I'm, you know, I think Tulsa is the better team, obviously getting almost double-digit favorite here. But um, Old Dominion won five straight to even get qualify for a bowl game. Mm-hmm. So uh and they've been a different team since quarterback Hayden Wolf took over for uh Mac also. So um uh this is a great matchup. I think I lean towards Tulsa, but I don't have a great feeling about it. How how do you feel in this game? So I agree with you. Tulsa is the better team here. Uh but this is our third and, and final all three agree uh of this section of bowl games where you know, we're on Old Dominion to keep it close, keep it closer uh, than the nine and a half uh, at least. And, and Old Dominion's been a little bit of a tricky team for us. At the very beginning of the year, um, you know, we we had a, a few, all three agree situations where we had Old, uh, Old Dominion expected to cover some pretty big spreads against teams like, you know, Wake Forest and Liberty, and they just got blown out. But our projections, our, our numbers didn't expect Old Dominion to be you know, a, a UConn or a UMass type team where they, you know, should be ranked 127, 128, 129, something like that. Um, but they were playing like it early on. And it, it took a little while, and our numbers actually did because they started, what, one and six, started to, to shift toward Old Dominion being a team, you know, ranked 118, 119. But, you know, second half of the year and, and Old Dominion made a quarterback change uh, going from DJ Mack to Hayden Wolf and, and things really kind of took off. And, and suddenly, you know, when we weren't projecting Old Dominion to keep things close, not only did they start to play much better, they, they started to win games outright. Huge second half of the year. One of the hottest teams, you know, maybe in college football, just from a, a, a winning streak perspective. But Wolf, you know, put together uh some some quality performances but guys like Allie Jennings the transfer coming in this year sophomore uh just exploded this season Zach Kuntz at tight end might be you know as we look ahead a little bit to 2022 one of the best tight ends in college football I mean he was a highly highly rated recruit at Penn State followed Ricky Ronnie uh to Old Dominion and and it's already uh, you know, has already stepped up to become one of the most productive tight ends in the country, had a, a really big season, and I think has a re- really bright future as well. So, you know, Old Dominion, they've, they've been a little bit of a uh, tale of two seasons, the first half, the second half, and the way we look at, at everything overall, you know, this isn't, I think, the 97th offense ranked offense in the country as far as our team performance goes they're better than that they can throw with guys like uh you know jennings and and coons being playmakers but they can run it as well blake waston uh excuse me blake watson elijah davis pretty solid one-two combo uh at running back and you know this is this is a team that that has promise uh and and could be you know a a team to watch in conference usa next year or, or you know as they get ready to transition to the Sun Belt, but Ricky Ronnie seems like he did a, a pretty solid job, especially uh, not only the team sitting out all of 2020, but starting out as poor as they did and just completely, you know, flipped it this year. And Tulsa, in in some ways, was very similar. I mean, you know, Old Dominion started one 
uh, and six, but their only win uh, was against an FCS opponent. Tulsa lost to its FCS opponent in week one, lost to UC Davis, and then started one and four before getting things going and, and you know, one, what was it? Uh, five out of their last seven games. So they're not quite as hot right now as Old Dominion, but the games that they lost, including that Cincinnati game where they had every opportunity uh, to win and, you know, knock off Cincinnati and keep them out of the playoff, this Tulsa team can can play. And, you know, quarterback David Brin hasn't had a, a huge, huge season, but uh, they run the ball better than our team performance numbers would indicate. They're 88th in rushing team performance, but Shamari Brooks, uh, Denrick Pence, Anthony Watkins, pretty solid trio there. And a receiver, even though they've been without Kalen Stokes uh, for the, the majority of the second half of the year, guys like Josh Johnson, Juan Carlos Santana, Ezra Naylor are, are you know, give Bryn uh, some playmaking ability for sure. But, you know, defense has been the way Tulsa's won the last couple of years. They've taken a little bit of a step back uh statistically but this is still a top 40 defense 37th in defensive team performance 39th against the pass so you know will they be able to limit that old dominion passing game that that showed so much promise in the second half of the year i think is going to be the story so uh, you know uh, you you said it tulsa is the better team and old dominion uh you know are they the team that that uh played so well in the second half are they the team that started so poorly or are they something in between? It's been difficult for us to get a read on Old Dominion, but the way the numbers are treating them here at the very end of the season, it's that we expect uh, you know, Old Dominion kind of to, to keep rolling and, and probably won't be able to pull off the, the upset, but should be able to keep this game within a touchdown. So uh, all three projection models, as I said, uh, keep it keep it relatively close. Keep it under six points. So the nine and a half gives us a little bit of cushion there. So this could technically be one of our, uh, you know, all the way around one of our more clear uh, projections. Um, but you know, we'll ju- we'll just have to see because Old Dominion has been so hot and cold, so completely different in the two halves of the season. It's it worries me just a little bit. But we see a pretty pretty big edge, at least as far as the numbers go, uh, that that ODU will be able to keep it close. What do you think, Xavier? Is uh, ODU gonna keep this game close, or is Tulsa just too talented for them to handle? Like I said, mm-hmm. uh, I think on paper you go Tulsa, but I mean, ODU played great in the back half. So where do you go in this one? Yeah, and as great as ODU played in the back half of the season, I'm still not sold. I think I'm gonna go with Tulsa here. You know, Nick talks about the fact that, you know, Tulsa lost to UC Davis early in the year. The very next game, they almost beat Oklahoma State. Like, this is a Tulsa team that I genuinely think underperformed this year uh, with their record. You know, you look at some of the other games that they lost that they possibly could have won. You look at Navy, lost by three. Um, You know, uh, obviously the Cincinnati game lost by eight in a game where you probably, you know, you look back, you go back and watch that game and neither team looked like they wanted to actually win the game in the second half. It was more just like, you take it. No, you take it. And eventually Cincinnati was like, all right, I guess we are the better team. We'll just win the game. Uh, and so I genuinely think this is a Tulsa team that could have been eight and four, nine and three almost. Uh, if they would have, you know, heck, if they just would have beat UC Davis and Oklahoma State back-to-back weeks, we'd be talking about a completely different Tulsa team right now. And so I think I'm going to go with Tulsa here because as much as their downs have been, down 
they don't look as bad as Old Dominion's do. You, you talk about how Old Dominion, you know, Tulsa's worst loss on the year was to Ohio State and Houston. Okay, that's fine. Obviously, UC Davis is on there as well. But it's talking about in, in point spread, their worst two losses were against Tulsa. or right, against Houston and, and Ohio State. I could be okay with those two being the, the two worst point spread losses on my list. Whereas I look at an old Dominion team, yeah, they were they, they were just they were suckful to start the year off. It was just not a good time uh, for them. Yes, they had some close losses to, like to Buffalo and Marshall, uh, but it was bleak. It, it was it was rather bleak, uh, and it was really it was really hard to pull from. Uh, and they were able to just rally together at the end of the year. You know, a very impressive victory over Charlotte to end the season, winning it by 22 points in a, in a shootout type fashion, putting up 56 points, uh, which was their obviously their their season high for them. Um, I'm going to go with Tulsa here. Like I said, I think Tulsa was a team that could have easily been eight and four this year, nine and three, and could have beat you know two ranked teams that had chances to get to the college football playoff. One is in the college football playoff, and the other one had a chance. And by and as we alluded to earlier in the episode, missed it by a foot. Uh, so I'm going to go with Tulsa here. I think that they will uh, show that they are the better team here. And I think Old Dominion's, you know, confidence coming into it. I know confidence is key. I've said that in the episode earlier. But I, I think it will run out in this game. I think Tulsa uh, being the best team will will show themselves, excuse me, that they are the best team on on Monday. Oh, wow. You're right, Scott. We do get games every single day. I didn't even realize there was going to be a game on Monday. Woo. Every single day, man. Every single day. Yeah. Monday games, Tuesday games, we get everything. So uh, this is these are the last games of the year. So you don't have to, you know, you don't have to prep for next week. So you can play whenever. And uh, the long layoffs for a lot of these teams moving forward here. And um, we go over and jump into the potato bowl here. And the potato bowl is Kent State versus Wyoming. Wyoming is a three point favorite. 59 is the over. And Nick, I think this is the purest coin flip game that we have, at least in this slate of uh, bowls here. Uh, I think this game is an absolute coin flip as to who could win, but I don't think it will play like that. I think whatever team wins will dominate either Kent State through their offense, Wyoming through their defense, but I have no idea how it's going to go. So uh, break it down. How do you see uh, this uh, potato bowl going, going, and do you like Kent State or Wyoming? Yeah, I'm with you, and this is the biggest contrast of styles. I mean, one team, Kent State, has been so, uh, you know, so offensive-minded this year. The numbers aren't, aren't you know, and our team performance numbers aren't necessarily that Kent State's the best offense in college football, like they they played like in a, in a shortened 2020 season. But they're a top 40 offense overall, uh, top 10 in rushing offensive team performance, which is a little bit of a surprise. Uh, you know, only 60th in passing team performance, but quarterback Dustin Crum is a max 100 rated player. They've got playmakers at receiver. Dante Cephas has had a solid year all season. Uh, Krishan Abram is, has done uh, quite well. And then who we expected to be their top two wide receivers coming into the year, Deshaun Polk and, and the transfer Nikeem Johnson, you know, they're there as well. They haven't quite put up the numbers, but uh, still solid options, but then they can run the ball with Crum, with Marquez Cooper, and then you know they've got depth there as well in Xavier Williams. So Kent State offensively is a lot to deal with. The problem, in addition to a defense that ranks 110th in defensive team performance and triple digits on both sides of the football, is the last time we saw Kent State, they were getting blown out in the conference championship game by Northern Illinois, a team that runs the ball, that you know uh, tries to slow down the game a little bit, and that's exactly what 
Wyoming does. So if Kent State, you know, falls into uh, which team is going to dictate the tempo of the game, the style of the game, if Wyoming's able to dictate that tempo, then this game could look like the MAC championship game. If Kent State is able to open it up and make it so that Wyoming has to try to play catch up or try to match score for score because Kent State is able to, you know, Wyoming plays pretty solid defense and, and the raw numbers are decent. Uh, even some of the advanced numbers, I mean, yards per pass attempt, they rank top 10 in the country, yards per play against FBS opponents, top 25. But overall, defensive team performance, they're 67th. And their strength is 21st against the run. So if Kent State can run the ball um, and, and, you know, can uh, put some pressure on that Wyoming defense, get into the end zone, pay off drives, then it's going to be tough for Wyoming to keep up. Because even though they've got talented players, guys like Xavier Valaday and Titus Swin at running back, Isaiah Nayer has been one of the uh, you know biggest big play wide receivers at the group of five level. But their passing offense just has not been consistent. They rank 97th in passing offensive team performance. Levi Williams took over as the starter, has had moments, has connected with Nayer on some big plays. But Wyoming is a team that wants to slow things down, keep keep the ball, keep possession, and you know just just try to uh, keep the core, score close to the fourth quarter and and then win it there. So uh, you know I, I'm I. I completely understand what you're saying, and in some ways, I, I certainly see how that could be a factor. I mean, will it be a Wyoming big win? Will it be a Kent State big win? Neither would surprise me. The only thing that sort of uh, really jumps out is we actually have Kent State favored in this game, even though Wyoming's a three-point favorite. This is our only wrong team favored uh, projection of this set of games. And traditionally, those have been pretty good for us. They're, they're a little under 50% straight up this year, uh, but against the spread, you know, pretty good. And we've got, you know, if we're almost 50% on outright upsets, uh, we're sitting in a, a pretty profitable position overall. So that's been a good, you know, good indicator for us. We do think Kent State uh, should be favored in this game to win it outright. It's you know it is a toss up game, but I, I certainly understand what you're saying as far as uh, you know one team kind of uh, dictating which style of play, and then that team has an opportunity to to open it up. I I I, I tend to agree. I, I I think you I think you put that pretty well. So our projection doesn't necessarily line up with that. We have Kent State winning thirty one twenty nine, so barely on the over. That kind of shows maybe it's going to be Kent State's game, not Wyoming's. Um, but yeah, I, I I I see where you're coming from. So maybe this is a you know forty one twenty four type game if it's Kent State, or uh, maybe it's you know thirty one to to ten if it's a Wyoming type game. Any of those scenarios, I think, uh, could come to play. But you know, the one thing I can I can kind of hold to, or, or you know, hope that we've got correct is actually that Kent State should be the uh, the team that's favored here. Xavier, how do you see the potato bowl going? Do you think this is a Kent State win or a Wyoming win? Before I go, do you think they get potatoes in their swag bags? Uh, I hope so, but knowing that we didn't get Cheez-Its at the Cheez-It Bowl, you had to pay for them, I'm going to say I doubt it. Fair points, fair points. Uh, I, I think that Kent State is the – I think Kent State should win this ball game. But 
to Nick's credit, he was he was talking earlier, and he, the first thing he said was, "I'm not sure Wyoming can keep up with Kent State." And if you, if Wyoming has an, an example where they were able to keep up with a pretty similar opponent to what Kent State has seen this year, when they beat Northern Illinois in Week Two, fifty to forty three. Now I'm not saying that's that that's just you know you watch that game and you're saying okay cool Wyoming Wyoming's going to be able to beat Kent State, but what they were able to do to Northern Illinois in that ball game was you know they they were opportunistic picking off Rocky Lombardi three times, and still to the credit of what Nick was saying it's defense first they're going to run a win when going to want to win excuse me with their defense even in that ball game the offensive stats aren't you know eye popping you know Zayvon. Valaday had 100 yards. Sean Chambers threw for 200 yards and two touchdowns. But ultimately, that defense came to play and, and kept a, a high-powered Northern Illinois offense off the field with turnovers. That's how Wyoming wins this ballgame. Because I don't think they're just going to be able to stop Kent State. Typically with these offenses, and I say I, I said at the beginning of the bro- uh, broadcast, podcast, same thing, um, an offense travels in these ball games. Typically, defense does not. And I think in this game is a perfect example. I don't think... I don't think uh, Wyoming is going to be able to stop Kent State. But if they can just get be opportunistic enough, I think you see an opportunity here where Wyoming can control the time possession and win this ball game by, by doing so. Uh, I also think a massive part of this game is going to be field position. How far does this Kent State offense have to go? I think that's going to be something else that, that we look in on this game when we look who, who won it. Did Kent State have to consistently go 85, 75 yards? Because as good as this Kent State offense is, how many times in their offense, how explosive are they versus how much, how methodical are they? In my opinion, this is a super explosive offense, which is great, except for when you're starting your, your offense on your own 15 seven times. So from a Wyoming standpoint, they're also going to have to play field position. I, I just think that too many variables have to go in the way of, of Wyoming for them to win this ball game. whereas I feel like Kent State comes into this game and their offense just has to click enough for them to win this game. I think Wyoming, you have to see a really good game. You have to see a really controlled game from Sean Chambers. Their special teams unit has to be good because field possession is going to play a, a role. Their running game has to has to get going early and get going often to make sure that Sean Chambers isn't in third and longs. Where I feel like Kent State feels like they can throw the ball around the yard. They can also run it with whomever they want to. They're they're not a one-dimensional offense in the slightest. Uh, my favorite game I point to is Kent State versus Miami of Ohio, where they, where they went 48-47 in overtime. Dustin Crum threw for 325, and they ran for over 300 yards. So this is a, this is a team that can do it both in the air and on the ground. And I think they're going to be able to do so um, against Wyoming. The only thing, and Nick, this is the first time you haven't brought it up in this podcast, how much of a home game is this for Wyoming? You don't think so? I, I can see the chagrin on your face. Go ahead. Uh, I mean, how many people? Yeah. How many people travel for Wyoming? I mean, so okay, uh, so I, and that's a great, great. I'm glad you answered. When Georgia State played Wyoming in the Arizona Bowl two years ago, it was actually a one heck of a turnout. They actually brought, I would say. Maybe 20,000 people were at that game. I genuinely think so. They actually had a pretty good turnout. Go back and watch that Arizona Bowl. There's a ton of Wyoming fans to the point where I flew home with a lot of them. Uh, so <laughs> I, they, trust me, I saw them. They were all over that airport at midnight after that game ended. They traveled pretty well for a game that's – and once again, this is in Idaho, so this isn't too far of a flight for them. and probably got to be pretty cheap of a flight to get from Wyoming to Idaho as well. So I, I think you may have a, a bit of a home field advantage for Wyoming over Kent State in this game as well. 
I mean, I'm I'm just trying to go. Uh, I can't imagine that twenty thousand people were at that game. So uh, <laughs> to say that Wyoming had twenty thousand fans, I don't. Did twenty thousand people live in Wyoming? I, I don't know. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, I it, I know it is the least populous of all fifty states. So is Wyoming. So it's 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 a little bit deceiving, uh, Xavier. And 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 yeah, I mean, traveling to Arizona. Certainly, certainly understand that, and it, it, it makes some sense uh, getting away maybe from uh, the Wyoming winter. You know, maybe that was a little bit of a draw. Boise, a little bit different. It's actually a little higher uh, as far as, uh, you know, the, the latitude, longitude. Uh, 36,000 showed up for that 2019 Arizona ball. So maybe you're right. Hey, you could be. But <laughs> it's deceiving out west. Yeah, they share, you know, Wyoming and Idaho share a border, but it's it's a 10-hour drive. It's it's almost 700 miles. So, uh, yeah, the flight, maybe you can get out of, of uh, you know, get into Boise pretty pretty easy. Um, but it's it's not quite as close as it seems. But if, you know, you bring up a great point that they traveled really well the last time. I don't think I realized uh, that they traveled quite that well. So, yeah, if, if they can bring a lot of fans – then, then that's certainly something that that could help swing, uh, you know, swing in their favor. My my main question and the reason I didn't really bring it up was weather and like, okay, so mm-hmm. it's this is not a warm weather bowl. So Wyoming playing a similar climate to what they'll see in Boise will that be an advantage? But Ken, Ohio is pretty cold right now, so uh, maybe maybe not. You know, gets get some rough weather during the winter. Uh, as well, so maybe maybe that's not going to be a huge advantage, but playing at altitude, that sort of thing, uh, certainly could give Wyoming a, a little bit of an advantage as well too. So certainly certainly some additional layers uh, worth considering in this matchup for sure. All right, for the Frisco Bowl here, UTSA versus San Diego State, two and a half for UTSA is the spread here, forty nine and a half, low over. Uh, San Diego State plays great defense. UTSA plays great offense, so it is a good matchup. Uh, on that side of the ball, um, UTSA been a little inconsistent. San Diego State has one of the best uh, special teams weapons, and Matt Arazi, I believe, is you, how you say his name. Um, how do you see the Frisco Bowl playing out here, Nick? I see, it as a pretty close game. Um, our projections don't have a huge edge here. Uh, UTSA is a two and a half point favorite. We see it as little more than three and a half, both in our official projection and our talent edge. But the stats only model because there's a little bit of a longer history of success for San Diego State, that model actually has uh, the Aztecs favored to win outright. I, I should have mentioned Wyoming was actually favored in the stats-only model as well. Um, but that's the only reason that this, this isn't, and all three agree, is you know UTSA, small, small uh, edge in the first two, but San Diego State, pretty big edge in uh, the, the stats-only model. My main thing here and and we're on UTSA to cover uh, but I don't have a lot of confidence in that necessarily but when I'm looking at the matchups you know more specifically I kind of like that we're on UTSA in part you know hey they're they're playing in the state of Texas best season in in you know history so I'm sure they'll travel pretty well uh, for a celebration of that but also I, I just think UTSA is the more complete team San Diego State plays excellent defense one of the best defenses in the country during the regular season the the mountain west championship game not exactly sure what happened there but you know from just a a team performance standpoint top five national ranking 
in overall defense and rushing defense, and they rank 12th against the pass. So that's going to be tough. But offensively, I mean, they, they struggle to put points on the board. They struggle to, to you know, build drives. And, and uh, the quarterback play has really kind of kind of brought them down a bit. I mean, they've got a solid running back in Greg Bell. They've got some depth at that position as well. They've even got some playmakers at wide receiver, but they've lost a couple of uh, offensive linemen, including a starter to the transfer portal. Uh, who, who won't be playing in this game. And then just, you know, inconsistency at quarterback, whether it's going to be Jordan Brookshire, who it seems like has regained the job. Lucas Johnson has started at times as well. Um, but, you know, UTSA, uh, they've got quality quarterback play. They've got one of the best running backs in the country in Sixier McCormick. They've got playmakers at receiver, Zakari Franklin and, uh, you know, Cephas and, and uh, Clark. They're, they're solid on offense. But they also play pretty good defense. I mean, not not top five, but when you look at a, a San Diego State offense that ranks 91st overall, 120th in passing offensive team performance, you know, UTSA is at least uh, top 40, or excuse me, top 50 on both sides of the ball. So they're not, there might not be an elite unit, but there's also not, you know, one of the worst units of any bowl team. So I, I think if I were to, to – try to say you know try to talk myself into our projection beyond the right side is that UTSA is just a little bit more of a complete team and UTSA's weakest point they do rank 96th in passing defensive team performance some of that is they had to play Western Kentucky twice but you know if you're if your biggest weakness is also your opponent's biggest weakness you know that that makes me feel a little bit better about UTSA as well San Diego State might suffocate UTSA like they've done several opponents in the past. They might turn them over. The special teams certainly might, uh, you know, play a big role, flip the field, and, and put San Diego State in a position to win the game. But if we've only got, you know, one shot at it, uh, and our projection is, is on UTSA by a very small margin, I just, I, I guess, wishful thinking maybe, but talking myself into UTSA has just got fewer uh, you know, big time weaknesses and, and, and just is a little bit more complete, a little bit more solid at each position group, and, including the quarterback play. So we're, we're on UTSA by a, a pretty small margin. Uh, this is a, a total under 50. So we, we're on the over as, as we often are. But 28 24 is our projection. I could see 24 20, something like that. But, but we're on UTSA to, to cover, but barely. Uh, Xavier, how do you see this game playing out? This, uh, like I said, this is a great matchup between UTSA's uh, offense and um, uh, and San Diego State's defense. So, uh, do you see UTSA taking this one because you like offense more in these bowl mm -hmm. games, or do you think San Diego State's defense is strong enough to stop them? San Diego State was literally why I've decided to go purely for mostly offense in these bowl games. Last year we came into the we came into their bowl game talking about how good San Diego State's offense uh, defense had been all year. You know, San Diego State was had one of the best defenses in the country last year, and, and then they got mollywhopped. And I was like, well, maybe offense carries a little bit better in these bowl games. And I'm gonna go with UTSA here. Uh, this is a team that I genuinely think is gonna play pissed off as well. This is a team that could have. Not could have probably should have had an undefeated year uh, this year. You know, the, laying a complete egg against North Carolina, uh, North Carolina, North Texas, uh, and really just not coming to play in that game. Uh, maybe they were fatigued after a long Thanksgiving. I don't know, but they just did, did not refuse to play the game of football that on that afternoon. And you know, they they write the ship and they win. You know, uh, the conference. 
they won in conference USA championship. I think their offense is as explosive as any, as you know, most in the country. And I don't think San Diego state's ready for it. I'll be perfectly honest with you. On top of that, Nick talked about this with, uh, in the last ball game, we talked about weather. The UTS, this is going to be great weather. This, this no, there's going to be no problem with them playing in Miami. This is going to be fabulous weather for them in this game. Is this game? Excuse me. Sorry. I got confused because it's the Miami Beach Bowl. I completely forgot. I completely got confused. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it threw me, threw me completely off. This is actually in Texas. My bad. Home game for UTSA, actually. But also still weather. I, I don't think that the weather should be that big of a problem for them. Obviously, they've been playing in this all year. Uh, also, this should actually be a home game for them a, as well. But I think UTSA's offense is going to carry them in this ballgame as it has all year. And, and really, when you're talking about San Diego State, it's not just that they have a great defense, but it's not only that their defense, in my opinion, is not going to be able to stop UTSA, but how much is their offense actually going to be able to do? In the wins that they have this year, majority of them, they don't score 30 points. And I don't see UTSA, even in a in one of their worst games of the year, being held under 30 points. You know, you, you really look at it. And, and San Diego State's most amount of points that they put up this year was 48 against Townsend. After that, it's 33 against Utah, 31 against New Mexico. And then after that, we're into the 20s. And you look at it that way. And I'm not sure that even in, in UTSA's worst performance, they're going to put up a 21-point outing, a 14-point outing. And so I think UTSA wins this ball game because even though even with how good San Diego, San Diego State's defense has been this year, I'm still concerned that their offense can even put up enough points to win them the ball game if their defense is playing lights out against this UTSA team. So I'm gonna go with UTSA uh, to win this in, in the Miami Beach Bowl that's played in Texas. Yes. All right, yeah, yeah that, <laughs> it is uh, a little uh, confusing there, but. Uh, you know, uh, we, we got it done. Uh, the last bowl game that we have up here is the Armed Forces Bowl. Army is a three and a half point favorite against Missouri. 58 is the over here. Um, you know, speaking of home games, the Armed Forces Bowl and Army uh, being in this game might have a little something, something there, Nick. So how do you see this game be uh, playing out? All right. Last but not least, and I'm, I'm uh, not trying to uh, not trying to mail it in here. But I, I have no idea on this one because <laughs> our projections, this is one that's all just all over the place. And I've, I've actually toyed a little bit with in future years, you know, we'll, we'll write about Army. We'll keep an Army page. We'll try to update, uh, you know, roster stuff. But but as far as projections, you know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe we just toss out some of the, uh, you know, the projections when it comes to military academies and, and games that they're in, but just because the projections are all over the place with the three models that we do. If talent were the only thing we were looking at, this is one of the biggest mismatches of the bowl season. In our talent numbers and our, our talent edge projections, Missouri would be a 33 and a half point favorite. If all we looked at was, you know, recruiting stuff and roster strength and things like that. Missouri's just just the more talented team, and, and we've mentioned it you know, plenty of times in a ton of different scenarios. That Army just has a lot of you know two star guys who, yeah, some of them end up being more talented than those ratings would uh, you know expect, but they're just able to to do more with less with the style of play that they have. The fact that they can bring in much much bigger classes, so you have an opportunity to uncover maybe a, a little bit of a hidden gem. Army's got you know solid quarterback play. They've got some explosive guys on offense. Guys like uh, Terrell Robinson is one of the more 
uh, you know, one of the fastest running backs, slot back, can do a, a lot of different things, catch the ball out of the backfield, make an impact on special teams. Uh, but, you know, he was a two-star guy, a, a, a unrated player coming out of high school who's just better than we expected. And, and in part, Army's able to uncover guys like that, guys who are a little uh, smaller and, and uh, just just fly a little under the radar. Uh, but also, they play a different style of football. And, and you know, they've, they've won. They've far out uh, played those roster strength numbers to the fact where they're a top 40 team in overall team performance, top 30 on offense, top 20 rushing offense, and they play solid defense as well. They're right around 50th in, in the national team performance rankings on uh, overall defense. And, and that includes a game against Wake Forest that just, you know, marched up and down and, and uh, put, what did Wake Forest score 70 in that? So, you know, uh, Army has, has struggled at times with uh, some talented opponents, but they also can, um, you know, they, they can cut down that talent edge. And, and uh, they have a history of success to the point where, you know, it, it, it makes sense that Army is favored in this game. Our stats-only model actually has Army as, you know, covering this game by – uh, closer to a touchdown. So uh, this is one that could go a, a variety of different ways. We've seen Army just completely blow out teams in bowl games against Houston a couple of years ago, uh, a few years ago now. But, um, you know, just just a, uh, maybe one team wants to be there more than the other. It's a difficult offense to prepare for, even though Missouri's had a little bit of extra time because Army had to play last week, uh, you know, had to play the Army-Navy game. Missouri had, you know, maybe an extra week to to uh, prepare, but it's a it's a unique thing. It's something that Missouri certainly hasn't dealt with much recently. Their defensive coordinator, longtime NFL guy, I bet hasn't had to prep for a triple option team in you know a decade or, or however long. So um, it's it's a really really tricky one. Missouri is far and away the more talented team, has a talent advantage at every single position, the way we calculate it. Um, and, and so that just that makes things a, a little bit weird. Uh, Army has you know uh, higher head coaching ratings, higher coordinator ratings, uh, higher team performance ratings because Missouri's 84th overall, 61st on offense, triple digits on defense, which is a, a real rough sign when you're talking about playing a unique offense. However, it is worth mentioning Missouri has improved over the course of the year. They're not one of the very worst rush defenses in the country anymore, but they're still, you know, triple digits. So uh, it, it's a tough one. We are on Missouri to cover. Uh, we expect another close game. A lot of our projections see close games here. 27-25 is our projected final score. It might be one of those, but but I, I kind of uh, go back to what you said earlier, Scott, about the, the Kent State and uh, Wyoming game. Right. Even Missouri likes to run the football, and Tyler Beatty's one of the best running backs in college football. Um, it's not quite the contrast in styles, exactly. I mean, it is because Army's, con- you know, <laughs> different than. I think they average sixty-one um, rushes a game. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, it, it's just the 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 makeup of the two teams is so different that I could see it playing out in the way that that we discussed in in that game, where maybe you know. Maybe it's a blowout, 
we just don't know which team blows the other out. So uh, we're we're we do have Army favored. The official projection is by two, 27-25. I, I think I'm glad that we're on Missouri, uh, but this is one that that just for me is the the most difficult of this group, and and I could see going anyway. Uh, Xavier, I mean, I've I've got Army in this game, not with a ton of confidence though. I think that. The running game is just going to be too much for Missouri. Missouri, not great, um, you know, on um, defense also. And I think that this will, the time of possession, I think that's the thing that's going to grind down on Missouri. And I think it's going to make them panic, not having the ball as often as they do in this game with Army, I think, being the number one clock control team. Air Force might be a little bit better than them. But I think they're 1-2 as they're 1-2 in rushing as well. So I think that's going to be the difference here. Missouri probably makes a mistake or two, um, which they have. I think they've only turned the ball over 12 times a whole year. So only once a game, which is great. But I think if you do that in a bowl game, you're going to get beat. And I just, that's the way I see it in my head playing out. Like Nick said, could go many, many different ways. How do you see this game going? I mean, this game is going to go fast. I think this game can literally end in about two hours and 15 minutes between both <laughs> of these ball clubs. Genuinely, you know, you've got Missouri on one end with Tyler Beatty. Genuinely, might, he might get 35 carries. And on the other end, you've got Army who will probably run the you know run the ball sixty times. Like it is, this is a game that you know, barring any you know unforeseen passing attacks, this this is this is a game that can genuinely end. If if you if it starts at eight, it may end by ten thirty. Just just be prepared. Uh, so, I, but all jokes aside, I think I think Army wins this game. I think you're absolutely right. I think when you play a triple option team, it's so hard to prepare for them because once especially if you don't play them. Play, play one, excuse me, at all whatsoever. And it's going to take a little bit longer than, you know, you're hoping to to get everybody to fill the right gaps. And what do you always hear when you play a triple option team? When you play a triple option team, don't overthink what you're doing. Just run in your gaps and let everybody else do their jobs. And nine times out of ten, it never goes that way. It sounds so simple when defensive coordinators break it down that way. It never goes that way. It never goes as planned. And I think Missouri is going to have some struggle with this. On the flip side of that, I think with Army's play style offensively, Missouri's it's complete opposite of what Missouri wants to play like. Missouri wants to slow it down. They want to run the football. They don't want Connor Bazel like having to throw the ball too much because he is susceptible to throwing the occasional pick, like you alluded to, Scott. If you don't get the ball with more than five minutes to go in a quarter, because you know Army's over there taking away nine to ten minutes in right. a drive and a half, you, there's nothing much you can do from a running running sense, you know, and unless you press. You, you start right. to press, and yeah. Now you're now you're forcing yourself to play in a shotgun and, and throw with a quarterback that you're not confident can throw the football that many times. You know, and, and on the flip side of that, the only thing I can say is that if Missouri does get up, they have the running game to keep Army off the field. Then Army has to pre- press. Regardless, whoever gets up first may be the team that wins. Whoever scores the touchdown first may be the team who wins because whoever scores first is probably going to have a seven, you know, a, a six or seven minute drive to do so, and the other teams is going to immediately feel the need to score right away, understanding that neither offense is explosive enough to score in in, in a minute or two minutes or even three minutes for that matter. Uh, but whoever, whomever can score first and, and take that time of possession seriously in this game is going to win. Uh, I think it's going to be Army because in watching Army two years in a row now, they do not care if it's fourth and one or fourth and two, or even fourth and three for that matter. They will continue to run that triple option, and they feel like it can, it works on anything shorter than fourth and four. And that, that, that that's a terrible situation because you have to play all four downs now against this team. 
You know, you get a team at fourth and three, typically they're thinking about punting. Not with Army. They think they can get three yards per clip, and they don't think that you, that you can stop them two two times in a row when they are trying to only get three yards. How many times, heck, even in the loss last week to Navy, they went for it on fourth down, I think, seven times? It was ridiculous how many times that they were like, oh, I mean, we can get it. We can, we can get this yard. And it's so tough to continuously stop a team, not three down, not three and outs, but four and outs uh, in, in a game. And understanding that if you don't get that stop on fourth down, they're going to rush for another two and a half minutes in, right. in, in the next four plays. So I got Army here because I think they'll just bleed the heck out of that clock. And, 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 you know, and I don't think Missouri has an explosive, explosive enough offense to uh, to capitalize on an Army defense that is a little bit susceptible to the pass. All right. Well, look, that is going to wrap it up. We ran long on the bowl show like we do. We've, we've talked so long. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Texas A&M and Georgia have flipped. Texas A&M now has the number one recruiting class. <laughs> That's how long we've been doing this show. But the bowl shows always go long this is the the last games of the season so we got to talk about all of them but uh, that will wrap us up remember you can follow us all on twitter at bogman sports for me at cfb winning edge for nick at xavier underscore trish t-r-i-c-h-e for xavier good luck in all your bowl bets and we will see you guys next week take it easy everybody thank you to our patreon supporters for keeping our show ad free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects thanks also to blake austin for our theme music to learn more about cfb winning edge Visit patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge or follow us on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge.